VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, May the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is producing the program. Also, Sarah Strickland sitting with David, getting a feel for producing the old Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, beautiful, bright blue sky morning here in the city of St. John's. Apparently a bit of rain coming later today, but let's have a great show. Uh, the Rogues won last night. I think their final game of the season comes up on this Friday at Mary Brown Center. Probably check in with Coach Jerry Williams as they wrap up their 40 games in the regular season. And the Growlers trying to even the series with the Florida Everblades once again at NBC tonight. Down 2-1 in the series. Puck drop at 7 p.m. So I don't know how many Canadian eyeballs remain on the Stanley Cup playoffs. But Florida, knock off the one seed, the Leafs, the two seed, the Hurricanes of Carolina, off to the Stanley Cup final. Pretty remarkable stuff. Kachuk, the pesky Matthew Kachuk, scores the winner again last night. So Vegas up 3-0. Looks like it's going to be Florida and Las Vegas in the Stanley Cup final. Sort of a bizarre bit of a matchup. But anywho, if you're watching it, let me know. All right. It was on this date in 1941 that the splinter, the thumper, Ted Williams, first went over his batting average over 400 for the first time since the first week of the season. Of course, went on that season to hit 406. He was the first person to bat 400 in like 30 years. There's nobody even approached it in, since the 1941. Williams actually made his way here to this province at one point. I can't remember exactly when it was, but there's a great picture of him down at St. Pat's Ballpark. But just think about Williams accomplished. 19 years in the bigs, all with the Boston Red Sox, predominantly as a left fielder. He was a six-time AL batting champion. He led the league in home runs four times, two-time AL MVP, two times won the Triple Crown, of course, for uh, batting average, RBIs, and home runs. Did it in 1942 and 1947. Career, of course, interrupted as he served in the first world, uh, pardon me, yeah, the Second World War and in Korea. So imagine the numbers he could have put up. His final at bat as a pro hit a home run for his 521st. So the splinter first cracked 400 on this date, 1941. Anyone knows any bit more about why Williams was here and can tell me about that photograph? That'd be great. Great bit of fun to talk about this morning. Another quick sporting note before we get into the meat of the program. It was on this date what people call the greatest 45 minutes in sports. 1935. Big Ten track meet at Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jesse Owens, who was a Buckeye, uh, ran track and field for the Ohio State University. He set three world records and tied another, and of course, never been replicated any time since. So imagine, in the span of 45 minutes, sets three world records, ties another. Of course, went on to win four gold medals in the 1936 games in Berlin, most successful athlete at those games, and pretty much put a bit of a wrinkle in the Aryan supremacy concept of the day in Germany. How about that? Okay, let's get to the news. So the representative of the Privacy Commissioner yesterday it was a gentleman named Sean Murray. He's the Director of Research and Quality Assurance in the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Newfoundland and Labrador. And this was the investigation, of course, into the 2021 cyber attack to the Meditech system. So the initial part of the report is kind of scathing. So here's some of the quotes coming directly from Mr. Murray. And remember, Michael Harvey was told that he had to step down, or actually, pardon me, he chose to recuse himself, given what was perceived conflicts of interest. So anyway, Mr. Murray was the lead investigator. 
One of the uh, big quotes that jumps off the page inside the 115 pages. The biggest question at the outside of this investigation for us was whether this attack succeeded despite provincial health authorities or entities having cybersecurity practices that met recognized international standards or if it succeeded because those standards were not being met at this time. And apparently, as Mr. Murray says, unfortunately, they found the latter. Securing the health information system was lacking in a number of important areas. They were not internationally recognized, industry standard cybersecurity measures. They were either not in place or not fully implemented. He goes on to say that the department was warned of this in 2020, so over a year prior to the cyber attack, and they did not do the work required to protect our information. They also talk about the timelines when the public was notified and whether or not this was a ransomware attack, and of course it was. We don't even know how many people had their personal information jeopardized for nefarious purposes. So he does go on to say that there's been substantial work done since to improve security measures. But we were long told, the rumors and rumbles were, that there were red flags brought forward to the government and no action or not enough action was taken to protect our information. With governments moving more and more to digitize more and more of our information, and, of course, we have to trust them with all kinds of important stuff. Your personal medical health information and some of your financial information was indeed jeopardized. Here's a couple of uh, notes inside the recommendations. Or pardon me, just some notes, and then we'll get into some recommendations. Patient Central Health from 2006 to 2021, they had their personal health information accessed and taken in the attack. Labrador Grenfell from 2013 to 21, same thing. Eastern Health from 2010 to 2021, same thing. And if you had a COVID-19 test up to 2021, they took your highly sensitive information. And, of course, it deserved the highest degree of protection, and it just wasn't in place. So when the Premier is asked about it, he defers to the department, and, of course, they're all one and the same. We cannot have, you know, the finger-pointing, whether it be with the... Uh, What's the called the Newfoundland Labrador Center for Health Information, which is the protector of the, our health information. So great that there's substantial effort being brought forward since, but apparently not enough attention was given to it when they were warned. And so it was inevitable that the system get hacked. Unbelievable stuff. Some of the recommendations inside the six of them, there are 34 findings, six recommendations. Periodic external reviews, good. Assessments or audits to assess the status of cybersecurity across the provincial health information system. Creation of a chief privacy officer within the new provincial health authority. So good work by the privacy commissioner's office and lead investigator Sean Murray. But these are things that, you know, we should be duly frustrated to know that a full year prior to the hack, the red flags were there and not fully acted upon. So good that they've done a lot of substantial work since, but that's a very concerning piece of work done by that office if you want to talk about it, because it's important. You know, of course, the hackers are relentless, and they've been very successful, even with some entities who you can be, rest assured, have done all they can to protect themselves. The Pentagon, a pipeline in the United States, some of the world's largest banking institutions, some of the world's largest hotel companies, they have fallen prey. But you wonder whether or not the, situ the situation there was, they were told that you're vulnerable and did nothing, or very little, or not enough. But apparently that's the case here. Maybe Mr. Murray, if he's available today, we can walk through that. Let's actually reach out to Sean Murray's office, see if he'd like to discuss the report in further detail, what he found, how he found it. And in the world of being scammed or someone infiltrating your cyber network, you know, it's becoming very, very difficult because the scammers are very, very clever. Now there's warnings of artificial intelligence used to substantiate 
or to try to substantiate some of the claims being made by someone who calls or sends you an email. They've been able to replicate your voice, finding videos of you speaking on social media, for instance. So they talk about some of the ways to arm yourself to detect whether or not it's a fake. But, I mean, for most of us, and I think probably including me, I try to be safe when I interact with anything online, especially when it, as it pertains to my personal information. They say they look for high-resolution images, zoom in, to f zoom in to find inconsistencies, check for asymmetry and physical abnormalities. You need some pretty significant sleuth or detective work to be able to identify some of these, but I guess we should talk about it because AI, as it improves, it will become more and more difficult to prove that it is indeed a scam, a fake. And this one here, again, just an extension of how clever people are being. I read a story this morning where a fella in Montreal, he says that someone from his bank, which is TD, gave him a call to protect him from a scam, and in fact they were the scammers, and milked him of $13,000. It's a bit of a complicated story. So basically what they did is they said they were investigators, employees with TD Visa, and wanted to uh, make him aware of some purchases, which he said he did not make. So I think this is the summary. They say his account was overdrawn by $13,000. So what they did is they took a cash advance on his credit card. They put it in his bank account to show that he was now made whole. But then further examination, in an effort for him to be part of the TD Visa investigation team, they said they would trace the money. And so consequently, they asked him to put that $13,000 into a Bitcoin wallet. So that should be a red flag, but I hate to criticize the man because he thought he was doing something to help his bank and maybe help more customers at TD to not fall prey. So ultimately, it was a scam. He says the bank didn't do their due diligence, give him the warning that there was that type of activity on his credit card. So I guess like everything else, if you get a call, especially when it talks about credit card information or any banking information, call the number on the back of the card. Verify that you're not being led down the garden path, but it's just unrelenting. All right, another report came out yesterday. This is also of interest and not great. So it's the Auditor General, Denise Hanran, talking about a performance audit of the province's food inspection and licensing program. Basically, they say both the Department of Health and Community Services and ServiceNL need to tighten up their game. And as it pertains to the minimum number of inspections that could and should be done between 2019 and 2021, they say that they fell short 16% of the bare minimum of uh, inspections that had to be taken place. So you have to wonder, is this a human resources issue? Do we simply not schedule these things out very early in the year, whether it be in January or fiscal years, which for the government ends March 31st, whatever the case may be? How do we not have a tight schedule to ensure that the minimums are hit? Then she goes on to talk about even if you have a complaint, there's no real established process for individuals or anybody else to put a complaint forward regarding uh, whether it be inspections or licensing. I guess we should probably reach out to Denise Hanrahan for once more, a bit more detail, elaborate on what she found and some of the recommendations she's putting forward. So she says health policies were found to be out of date. No oversight beyond annual service and other reports, which were not filed for the audit period. So both departments need to do better, obviously, because your food safety, when you choose to go to somewhere that prepares or serves food, then if the work's not being done, then that's not good for anybody either. So, you know, sometimes inside of government, the left hand and the right hand may not always be 100% in sync, but we're finding out far too often that it seems to be more the rule versus the exception. And I know that won't resonate well in the heads of senior bureaucrats and or ministers and or the eighth floor, but so be it. 
That's the way it works. You know, we entrust them to do a lot of good stuff for us, to manage our money properly, to protect our personal information properly, to conduct food inspections and licensing properly in a timely fashion. And apparently, based on reports that were offered yesterday, neither are happening the way they should. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. And I would like to talk to Hunter today about some of the warnings about avian flu and how to protect yourself and why you, how you've absorbed that warning coming from various entities about the presence of avian flu. And it's here. There's been 110 identified cases already this year. So not being a hunter, I can't really chime in on it about what I feel about the warnings and whether or not, whether or not I'm going to go for the birds, whether it be murs or turs or gannets or whatever the case may be. So if you're a hunter and know more about it than me, which all of you would, let's do it. All right, just a quick mention on the world of snow crab. So it's really quite encouraging to see the plant workers who, through no fault of their own, were caught in the crosshairs of the standoff between the processors and the union. Now they're back in. There's an estimated 5,000 plant workers that are going back to work in the snow crab facilities, of which processing facilities, of which there are 22 in the province. Apparently, the Quinlan Brothers' operations out in Beta Verde after the fire in April of 2016, the rebuild made it the largest crab processing plant in the world. couple of questions. We don't know if they're going to hit their target. And for the Quinlan Brothers operation, there is 10,000 metric tons. We'll see. We don't know what the harvesters or the union and the ASP are talking about regarding trip limits, which has long been a concern. But what's the long-term implication for our crab in the market? Will there be a problem there in the future? Will some of the buyers see that there might be hiccups in this crab fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador again in the future and consequently looking for more reliable sources? I don't know, but that's a worry that's being voiced inside the industry. Also, the ability to change how they set the prices. You know, inside the arrangement between the union and the processors, talk about a stipulation for price setting to be restructured, but of course that doesn't mean the government must do it. They weren't part of that negotiated uh, settlement on price at 220 a pound and a sliding scale up if the market improves. But the willingness is there. But how that works? And the government goes on to say that both sides have to honor whatever agreed upon solution is in place for this time next year. And consequently, hopefully that means no more of these six-week-ish standoffs because it has a big problem, it presents a big problem for a ton of communities, a ton of individuals, whether it be crew members, enterprise owners, you work in a fish plant or you own a fish plant, so it's a big deal. Then there's going to be lots of questions about temporary foreign workers. In every single one of the 22 plants, there's between 45 and 125 temporary foreign workers. So the whole future of the processing sector, who's going to be taking those jobs? going to be a long-running question. And what do you think about the CNL proposal of pot to plate? More percentage of the cash for harvesters simply to sell it to whoever they want, the starting price in and around five bucks a pound. Now, of course, the harvesters have been told if this ever comes to pass, they can set their own price. So whether or not they want to cut you a deal at 450 or make another buck at six bucks a pound, but we can take on some of that stuff if you'd like to talk about it. I think it's an interesting conversation to be had. Okay, this will not sit well in many folks' ears, but let's talk about it. Yesterday, or up until yesterday, we knew that there was a, a load of the 2,800 Ukrainian refugees that were unable to find jobs, and importantly for many, housing. Housing's been a crunch. So now the government, in an effort to address it, some $11 million yesterday to talk about permanent housing and jobs across the province. What they're getting into, basically... They're trying to, what Minister Burns says, I'm not sure what this means, is to unlock housing opportunities. Here's some of the numbers to consider. So about 2,800 Ukrainians have uh, fled, fled Ukraine, 
based on Russia's invasion back in February 2022, 1,600 have found permanent housing and none are in special housing. But here's some of the money we're talking about. The province is offering moving allowances for Ukrainians who do find permanent housing. Okay, what's the numbers? 2,000 to those moving to leased accommodations within the northeast, northeast Avalon, 4,000 for moves outside the St. John's area, and 6,000 to those moving to Labrador. Then they're looking for host families, which will receive $1,000 a month for up to five months while hosting Ukrainians in their homes. No real firm update on how many Ukrainians remain in hotel rooms. We had a call yesterday. Well, actually, the government has said there will be a 45-day max for staying in a hotel room. But, of course, exemptions and applications to extend it are inevitably going to happen and inevitably going to be granted. They're also talking about $3 million call for proposals for whatever this is, innovative housing projects for Ukrainians, repurposing vacant property, housing repair, maintenance assistance, and co-housing initiatives. As you know, I see the social and economic upside of immigration, but it has got to be done in a steady, understood organized manner that accommodates the needs upon their arrival. So again, it does not make anybody a bad person to talk about how and why some of the targets have been set when there's been such a problem with housing and affordability and jobs and access to more and more English-speaking courses. So, you know, it's fine to say we're bringing them in, and yes, they're fleeing for their very life. I totally understand this. But if we're not able to find them a place to live, unable to find many of them a job, Many of them will also have the same problems that many of you have with access to health care. So the targets sound fine, but you don't have the infrastructure to accommodate, whether it be on the federal level or even here in the province. Immigration's good. Expanding tax base. Understanding the agent demographic. There's a societal positive impact, in my personal opinion. But that more money for uh, refugees will not sit well with some. I understand what they're trying to achieve, because even if this is something that makes you cross, and the thought is in your head that, look, Coming here and getting additional supports while I go to work, and you know all the arguments made. But in fact, efforts to ensure Ukrainians get a job is actually good for the negative voices out there. We need people to be working. We need people to be standing on their own two feet, whether it be a refugee or anyone who's from or born and raised in this province. But I'm sure that's going to get some attention today, and we're not afraid of it. We'll take it on. How are we doing on the telephone? I haven't been watching that screen this morning. All right. Maybe that'll prompt the call. I don't know beyond Todd Churchill yesterday if we had any conversations regarding the access to information that the Churchill family received to show us that the government spent, or the, and now the government defers to the department, to the district, and again, you're one and the same. So $687,000 to defend the indefensible. Carter Churchill sitting in silence in school. Absolutely infuriating. The Churchills themselves spent $93,000 to pursue this all the way to the Human Rights Commission. Imagine the work that could be done with all that money. And even in the $150,000 uh, award they were given, some fifty can be associated with their legal fees. The rest will be put in a trust for Carter when he becomes, I think, the age of majority at 18. But now I hear more stories from one lady, and this, uh, again, went back to Beachy Cove Elementary, where Carter was in school and was the focus of the challenge at the Human Rights Commission. Talking about her child being left behind when it comes to reading comprehension and competency in math. And she didn't really know about the grade level reading abilities. Long may the kid have been struggling, but now to be told in kind of stark terms about he's going to fall through the cracks in full. Well, when we send our children to school, we really need the school to not only keep us informed as to their progress, but 
to ensure that children don't fall behind. Now, there's always going to be some kids who are unable to keep up with the workload and or for the reading comprehension issues and or competency in mathematics. But we can't have kids in a grade 6 classroom operating at grade 3 capacity. You know, the whole concept of you can't fail any longer, I know why they do it, but we're basically setting some children up for failure. If you're not prepared to move to grade 6 from grade 5, it's better for the child, even if it comes with people say, oh, he failed, this is his second go-around in grade 6 or grade 5 or grade 4. Well, at the end of their K-12 to experience, they'll come out better than if we just advance them when they don't belong in a grade 6 classroom because they don't have the competency or reading comprehension to satisfy it. So these things, I get how we're trying to modernize education. And I understand some of the, because when I was in school, we knew who failed. And yes, there may have been some smirks or winks or nods or understanding that this is someone's second or third tour through grade 6 or grade 9, whatever the case may be, but ultimately, probably in their best interest. Some, some form or some level of ridicule, which is unfortunate, is better than coming out of school completely unprepared. So what do you think? Last one, because uh, I'm waiting for the phone to ring. The David Johnson Special Rapporteur Report and the fallout. So we can talk about the shortcomings in the intelligence agency, what have you. But when the government offers the leaders of all political parties in the House of Commons to get a required security clearance for access to uh, intelligence briefings and the raw intelligence, Jagmeet Singh has taken the government up on it, but both Block leader Blanchett and CPC leader Poliev won't do it. And their answers are nonsense. They're saying that they don't think that David Johnson is the person to tell them what should or should not be redacted or what should or should not be seen. But that's not the issue. You're giving them the opportunity to understand exactly what's happening in the intelligence gathering system, how it's disseminated, how it's shared, raw intelligence. So if it's going to be simply about the political narrative and a hammer to bring to the campaign trail, fine, we understand. That's nature of the beast. But if we're talking about actual integrity of democratic institutions, protection of elections, understanding the intelligence community, maybe, just maybe, regardless of your political leanings, that's probably in all our best interest. We're on Twitter. We're BOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at BOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Oh, just one second there, buddy. i got to get my phone working here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Not too, not too great, but I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I know you were just saying regarding the uh, Chinese election interference that the opposition lead or opposition uh, party should uh, should take the opportunity to get the private clearance or the high security level clearance. I think so. I just feel I, I just feel that's a trap. I How just so? Find, uh, well, it, it's going to limit what they can talk about and stuff like that. I think I agree with the opposition that they should be hiring a, uh, a private uh, uh, former judge or something like that that can be trusted with the information and, uh, and, and whatnot. But right now it just seems that there's something to hide there, and, uh, and, and when, it, when it smells, it smells bad. I don't dispute. Look, I've long said I believe that a public inquiry should be the mechanism chosen here, even though I'm pretty sure that with the amount of classified information that will still be part of the conversation, we're not going to see it for the obvious reasons. My thought here, though, Peter, to be honest, is if this is simply going to be the political side of it as opposed to the intelligence side of it, then we're going down a path where I don't know this, how this constitutes a trap. Like Mr. Poliev or Mr. Blanchet, Monsieur Blanchet, if they're able 
able to see exactly what's gone on and have a better understanding of how the intelligence was gathered, how it was shared, who knew what when, isn't that in our collective best interest, regardless of who you vote for? Because some of that information they're going to get to see, we're never going to see it. The public is never going to see a lot of that stuff because it's classified. What True. do you think? I agree. So, but, but why not hold the public inquiry then? I'm all in favor for that. I've, I've said it since the very, very beginning. I think that even if we don't get what we think we should get in a public inquiry, it's the best mechanism for the public to have any faith in whatever the government has done, what the intelligence community has done, and the who knew what when. But apparently, you know, I just think it's a mistake to not take that security yeah. clearance. If that takes away some of their campaign armor, then that's really in their best interest, not in Canadians' best interest. That's what I think. Right. And and this special repertoire, as far as I'm concerned, if uh, if Mr. Johnson had any uh, I- integrity about him, he, he should have recused himself. Myself as a financial advisor uh, in my career over my years, if I was dealing with a client, uh, a husband and wife that were separated and they were both my clients, I would have to pick one of them that I could. I, I couldn't I couldn't say that I was unbiased because uh, from one party to the other. So I, I just don't think that he's the right man for the job, to be honest with you, with his history uh, and the donations and everything else. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's, uh, it is what it is, I guess, when we're operating under the government system that we have. Uh, Peter, what in particular do you think that makes Johnston not the man for the job? The, what specifics? Because I've heard a lot of uh, different uh, rationales offered. What are yours? I just feel that uh, there's just too close of a connection there where uh, sure he's a she he has some integrity and has a has a long background of uh, of some special projects under his belt but at the same time when there's a you know deep in the corner we've got maybe some unrecognized biases there like similar to prejudices that we don't realize that we have yeah, I mean, some of it, like, for instance, the Trudeau Foundation has become the new whipping post. And I get it. If there was donations made through Chinese government officials, whatever that got them inside the Trudeau Foundation, which basically sets up bursaries and scholarships for university students, I don't know. But that's a problem, and it had to be addressed. The fact that he was a member of the Trudeau Foundation, does that mean he's a Justin Trudeau fanboy? I don't know. Have you seen the, some of the names of the directors of the Trudeau Foundation? They're far and wide, and not all a bunch of liberals either. No, I, I, I agree. I agree, for sure. Anyways, I just wanted to voice my opinion on that, and thank you for your time. I'm glad you called, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take bye. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, whether or not Johnson's the right man for the job, that's a fair conversation that we're happy to have here on the show. But I'll, I'll stick by it. If we need members of the parliament, not only for various parties to be part of all of these parliamentary committees, you know, ENSACOP and all the rest of it, but for the leaders to have access to raw intelligence, to fully be briefed. I don't know why the refusal is anything but a political choice. Now, look, politics is a rough trade. They will try to gain an advantage wherever they can. That's how it works. I totally get it. I'm not Pollyanna here. But if we're going to make something out of this, and there's probably lots to see, I just think that doesn't matter who you support, doesn't matter your political leanings, left or right or center or green or liberal or Tory or block or whoever, If the issue is foreign interference, and we can hold the government to account, and we should, and we have, but if it's all about trying to understand what the influence looks like, China, Russia, Iran, whoever, and how long it's been going on and how we've been dealing with it or turning a blind eye to it, 
the sure way, surefire way is to have security clearance, get into a briefing with CISA's officials, and try to help figure this out. But yes, I long have said public inquiry. I think that's the chosen tool amongst Canadians, and I don't understand the political calculation that the government is making or some of the other party leaders. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. David, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you for asking. How about you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for the great work you do. Um, Just following up on the last caller, Patty, with uh, respect to the... um, China election interference report from the special rapporteur. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, the thing that came to my mind when I heard him speak in, in his uh, presser was I, I felt a little bit insulted. And, and I'm sort of, uh, you know, you're preaching to the choir with me when um, you suggest that, that uh, a public inquiry is, is a good idea here for this one. And I, I'm not a big fan of the Washington Post necessarily, but I think they've got a really great tagline, and you're pr- probably familiar with it, and a lot of your listeners are. Uh, Democracy dies in darkness is, is the tagline of the Washington Post, and I think that's a really important um, statement to make. The espionage world it lives in secrets, right? And uh, I think the, the, the broader context of this Chinese geopolitical play it includes things like the um, the um, tit for tat we had going on there with the Huawei executive in Western Canada, and the detention of the quote two Michaels, uh, which I'm sure pretty much everybody's familiar with. That was going on around this time, and um, you know I I was not happy with the media coverage of that because it, it seemed to be too uh, hyper patriotic for me. I mean. I look at this as sort of from a, the perspective of institutional rewards, right? What are the Chinese? Are the Chinese going to detain two civilians? Well, if they know there's two spies, they're going to detain them because they're going to force Canada to lie. They're going to force Canadian politicians to play a game, and they're going to gain advantage through just, that. Just so, so I know what you're saying, are you suggesting that Spavor and Korvig were indeed intelligence officials, spies, so to speak? No. Okay, good. No, I have no earthly so. idea, Patty. But but I'm willing to entertain that they might be because we do have spies, right? We have a, we have CSIS, and they, they hire people and they operate around the world in the sea, in in the shadows. Right. And they they might look like these two guys. They have to have a, a, a an official life. They have jobs, quote jobs, businesses and such. So I'm I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying the Chinese, if they could find two Canadian spies. They, they would detain them because it would be legitimate and it would force the government of Canada to, to into a, a position of uh, on their back heel. Sure. So I'm, again, I'm not saying they were. Okay. But Just let me add to that. Had, had they been, <laughs> hold on a second, David, had they actually been spies, and I don't know, I have no earthly idea, and spies do belong in the shadows, but had they actually been spies, would their only ask be for the releasing of the Huawei executive? as opposed to something much more consequence. You know, a leader of a telecom company or an executive in a telecom company is the trade-off for two spies in China? I know that sounds like they're asking for very little. Yeah, and, you know, maybe they're not that hostile toward Canada. Uh, You know, it's a bit of a different situation because there was the extradition order in an American court for that Huawei executive in Canada. So it was an apples and oranges situation. But again, like, I'm I'm not... 
I'm just all for transparency and, and a functioning democracy. And, and I look down stateside, Patty, in that absolute disaster that they're dealing with down there. Uh, with a bloated military budget, the military-industrial complex basically running their society, and Canada's north-south ties making our cultural ties to the United States so close. Uh, I don't want Canada to go down that road, you know, where we're beating the patriotic drums, the media's all on board, and we're, you know, we're just put a cloak around the truth, and, and, and that's, that would be bad. David, um I think the public inquiry would be a political calculation that would be better for government versus what they're choosing to do. Do you think that we'd actually glean much more information than we already have in the public realm through a public inquiry? Because the vast majority of the documentation that would be evaluated or analyzed will remain classified. Most of that inquiry would probably take place in camera, but I think it's the right thing to do because if we learn even one more thing, then that's something that I think is important for Canadians. But I'm not so sure we would, even though I think it's the right idea. What do you think? Well, you know, Patty, that's that's a good point, and and here's where it, it could be nefarious, right? If if what Johnston has seen is too hot to touch, if that's the reason for the 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 real reason for not having a public inquiry, then we really have a problem on our hands, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, that that's my two cents on it. I, I don't know much about it, but I look at it from the from the perspective of institutional rewards. What are the Chinese trying to gain here? What, what are we trying to gain? And, and it, it, the truth should come out. We have a right in a democracy to, the, to understand what our elected officials are doing and how our and that our elections are fair and, and free. And, and so that, that's a big thing. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the public inquiry and and very disturbed by this uh, this report of the special rapporteur. Yeah, so we know the prime minister was briefed uh, six times. We don't know what was in those briefings, and I don't think we ever will know the specifics. We do know that inside the 11 candidates, seven were liberals, four were conservatives, which I don't think was confirmed until very recently. We now are told, whether or not people want to believe it, that the issues surrounding Han Dong and his conversations with the Chinese consulate regarding Michael Spavor and Michael Korvik did not happen the way it was reported. So there's a bit of additional information that's in front of us. I don't even know what type of questions I would even ask at a public inquiry at this stage, not knowing what I could or could not be made uh, privy to. But this is going to it's going to dog the political conversation here. Ultimately, for me, I'm not necessarily that concerned with who people support as politicians or political parties. But I do see the unraveling of democratic institutions and people's faith in it in various countries, including our southern neighbors. And I think that's just bad for the country if that becomes more and more of the political discourse here. And if the, the way to rectify that, or approach to, is a public inquiry, there's really no downside if they're still going to protect anything that's classified that could jeopardize the country's status, could jeopardize uh, boots on the ground, whether it be a spy in Iran or in China or anywhere else on the face of the earth. So it's an interesting and complicated conversation, but one that must be had. And David, sure appreciate your time. Final thoughts to you before we say goodbye. This is the big worry, Patty. <clears throat> you know that if, if, if the spies are able to operate in the shadows and, and subvert the democratic process across across lines of, of nations, then we don't we've lost our democracy. Right. This is the whole point. And and, and I, 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 I it's not fear mongering to, to suggest that we need to drag the, the people in, in the, into the light of day, shine light on the dark places in the world, because that's what democracies do. Thank you for your time, Daddy. Appreciate yours. Thanks for the call.
All Take, the best. All right, you I too. Bye bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Bev Moore Davis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. So I wanted to talk to you about a program that we have talked about in the past. Um, The program is called Kids in the Know. It has been developed at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. And basically, it's a body safety program that has been implemented in schools in every province and territory. We are, unfortunately, uh, on the tail end. And uh, we've been advocating for the program for some time. It is uh, age-appropriate from kindergarten to grade 9. And it deals with such topics as child abuse, sexual exploitation, cyberbullying, and overall wellness of children. Um, Cybertips.ca has come out with some interesting uh, information, basically telling us that online luring is up 55% from 2021 to 2022. And another one, that in the past six months, uh, sextortion is up 150%. So they also deal with such important topics as healthy relationships and, of course, safe and responsible use of technology. So it is something that is, you know, they cover a lot of uh, important topics that we should be, you know, addressing right now with our young people. So the, the program itself is, um, it has been piloted in Newfoundland Labrador last spring um, in 18 schools and successfully piloted. But what we're doing now, um, because we've been pushing for this program for so long and um, with September, you know, quickly approaching, we are pushing to ensure that it is implemented province-wide. Every school, every classroom, every child has access to this education, this vitally important education. A couple of questions. So when we use numbers like uh, 55% or uh, 55% increase in online lowering, 150% increase in sextortion, that's probably mild numbers given the fact that not every instance it gets reported. So that's probably just scraping the surface here, and it should be absolutely concerning. uh, Just let me ask about what age appropriate means, because there's a lot of conversations about the age with which we should be arming children with information on a variety of fronts. Life and death, birds and bees, sexual education, protecting yourself with this uh, check all the boxes, kids in the know. What does age appropriate mean in this instance? Well, um, if you start with the younger children, um, like I have a lot of parents will often ask, when do I start having those conversations? For, you know, children that are learning about their bodies, I I can't stress the importance of using the proper terminology. Um, Just um, around Christmas time, I I had somebody reach out to me from Labrador. Um, This lady was a social worker, and she expressed the concern in in that she said RCMP, uh, they have children coming in and disclosing, but they don't have the proper terminology. The children, so they're, they're not adequately able to disclose what's happening to them in their homes. And with uh, age appropriate, um, you know, the program certainly looks at that from the younger kids right up to the to the teens. So uh, another thing that, um, that, well, no, something that just recently come up in the media. I'm sorry. No, I it totally, I just totally lost it. But as we keep talking, I'm sure it'll come back. Oh, I know what it was. Pornography, the online pornography. Every... Most children have a cell phone in their hand now. Do you know that I, I, I've learned, and this is so disturbing, the average age at which children are exposed to pornography is 11. And 
um, I've talked to a teacher who works in junior high, and she's telling me that they regularly see children looking at pornography in their classrooms. So the problem is that, you know, a lot of parents think that it won't happen to their children, nothing inappropriate, that they can protect them. The reality is it's going to happen. I mean, and whether, whether we had the conversations with their children or they had them in the schoolyard, it's going to happen. So I think getting ahead and ensuring that they get the proper education is critical. Absolutely. Some people might not be familiar with the term sextortion. I know what it is, unfortunately, reading the news like I do every single day. So basically what starts off as something quasi-innocent can lead to something quite dangerous very, very quickly. What's the, t- the, sp- the specific warnings, pardon me, for families to have these conversations with their children? Because regardless of your age, it can go badly very, very quickly. Seeing a lot of that, and what we've learned is that um, girls are being exploited for more images, more content, and boys for money, um, or you know, in the form of gift cards or however they they pay uh, the the person who is pushing for this. So uh, this is becoming more and more common, and it starts out innocently as, as we think. But um, unfortunately, we have no idea who's on the other end of the cell phone. This is why it's so important to talk to children about what they do put out uh, on social media. And, you know, there was also another recent um, statistic that I think you and I talked about in the past where I can't remember the exact number now, but a high percentage of junior high students, high school students, think it's perfectly normal to send nude photos. I mean, I think that's that's shocking to me. I'm not sure how you feel, but it's wow. Well, of course. I mean, things have changed so quickly in this world, and the hypersexuality is absolutely part of the societal conversation. I'll add to that is that let's just say we're talking about a 15-year-old girl. And you may think you're conversing with a 15-year-old boy who could be a 65-year-old man sitting in his living room in New York City. So even just knowing who you're talking with, because you may indeed feel comfortable talking about your crush on this boy or whatever happened on Friday night, but all of a sudden, if that ends up in the hands, whether it be images and or just comments, ends up in the hands of someone who's willing to say, okay, gotcha. Now I'm going to share it with your parents. I'm going to share it with your entire social media presence unless you send me some nude photographs. That's how quickly it can advance from I had a big crush and we kissed behind the school right don't tell don't tell my friends don't tell my mom all of a sudden you're being blackmailed it could be as innocuous as that all the way to naked pictures and that's exactly how it happens yeah and a lot of kids today will turn to social media when there's things going on in their lives instead of talking to the adults, the, you know, whether it be a relative or a school teacher guidance counselor they turn to people on social media so um, they're trusting in, in people sometimes that they don't even know, haven't even met. It's a scary world out there. You know, we all want to have our children feel a sense of independence and to feel a sense that we trust them. But even with the most careful young person, regardless of age, with their Internet activities, it can just pounce on you in a heartbeat because every evil in the digital world is lurking behind every single corner in the palm of your hand with your smartphone, on your iPad, on your laptop, on your PC. So while we want them to feel independent and trusted, we also have to arm them with all of the equipment and the red flags and the alarms going off in their belly that something might be wrong. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's important to just 
you know, talking to children regularly about who they are communicating with online, talk about, you know, they only accept friend requests from people that they know. Um, and parents should try and maintain control over the cell phone. And I often hear about, you know, the conversations about taking cell phones in schools and parents not wanting to make that decision, leaving it to the teachers. And, you know, if the, if the parent can't control, but they expect the teachers to be able to control right. the cell phone. Like it's, it's just becoming such a... Um, such a bigger problem than um, I think parents even realize. And I think you have to start out, you know, when a child gets a phone, you, you want to maintain some level of control right from the very beginning. You know, if you own the cell phone, you, you're paying for the cell phone as a parent. You have access to that as well. And I think, you know, parents are unfortunately uh, sometimes giving up those rights way too quickly. Possibly so. And of course, there's no handbook or textbook on how to be a good, whatever good parent means. But there's also, I think, an after-the-fact conversation to be had. You know, I think there's going to be some very likely dead giveaways that your child has been compromised, is now all of a sudden additionally worried or additional levels of anxiety because they find themselves in that predicament with that threat looming over their head. So, you know, to... To make them understand that if you have yourself in a bad spot, the one person you can trust in this world is me. I'm your dad, and in your case, I'm your mom. So if you're in trouble, tell me now before the trouble just gets worse because nothing gets better until it gets some attention from a parent or a loved one, a caregiver or whoever. So that next conversation becomes probably as tricky or trickier than the initial arming them with the the tools to understand that they might be falling to prey to some sort of problem, digitally speaking. Uh, Bev, good to have you on the show. What's the timeline for or any potential full implementation of this project? So I've been talking to government in the last couple of days, and uh, I mean, I know their interest, and you know, for in this whole time that we've been advocating for it, there has always been an interest, and they know how important it is. It's just that it's not happening um, as quickly as we would like it. So uh, what we want to see is province-wide implementation for September 2023. So what we did is we created a, a campaign that includes a website where people can go online. It's called bodysafety.com. Um, BodySafetyNL.com, sorry, and get educated on the program. And, and you know what? Go to the Canadian Centre for Child Protection and you can see all kinds of information there about the program. And for any parent who is struggling or worrying about things that may be going on with their children, young or old, um, the Miles for Smiles Foundation, we also have a, uh, you know, a great resource there for for tips and things that they can look for but uh, you know just for people get educated um, check out the website and uh, you know have these important conversations with your children appreciate the time this morning Bev thanks for this thank you take care bye bye it's Bev Moore Davis that's uh, important stuff you know Again, maybe sometimes we're just so busy and oblivious to what the ch- our children might be doing or what they're looking at or they're communicating with. And again, you don't want to be looking over their shoulder 24-7 so they feel that there's, you have no faith in them, you have no trust in them. But protecting them, I guess, maybe trumps those two. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sharon. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? Pretty good. Good. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to figure out something. Um, You know, they're building a new penitentiary down in the White Hills Road area. Mm -hmm. And we live in the Virginia Park area. So uh, I'm I'm just wondering, anybody who's developing land around a residential area, are they responsible or do they they just um, voluntarily take the responsibility for pest control to eliminate potential infestations to nearby homes? 
so I we've been having some issues lately. I've lived here since '89 and haven't had any most problems except for when Katrina happened, and a lot of people were having issues back then, but that was short lived. And uh, so I called City about it to inquire, and they couldn't give me uh, anything that they could do to help personally themselves. But I said, you know, they asked me, you know, what was the area I was thinking about. And I said, well, this is the penitentiary. I said, they're up on the White Hills Road, not far from where we live. And I said, I'm wondering, you know, are they responsible for doing some kind of pest control? Because when you develop land of any kind, even if it's a housing development, uh, we're up in the woods here and you have the dump and you have country ribbon chicken and and virginia river and that around so we have rodents just now everybody's got them but when they get into your home and they start causing a problem and it's you know what can be done about it so they basically told me that uh because the penitentiary was a provincial thing i had to call the confederation building so like i left messages and i I called. I just couldn't get in touch with anybody. So I'm just wondering if you would have any idea about this. Not particularly. It's an excellent question, Sharon, because I know back in the days when we lived in Jasper National Park in Alberta, when there was any of that type of work being done, not necessarily about rodents, because Alberta pretends that there's no rats in the province, but <laughs> with mice and whatnot, there were controls put in place. And even if it was other biodiversity, other wildlife or other species, there was monitors on site to deal with exactly that. Is that something here? I don't think so. Maybe that's a national park type of thing. But that's a really good question that you ask because the reason that we see so many rodents into our neighborhoods now is because of the amount of development that's happening. And your concern is one that I have when they go to do whatever they're going to do at Ballyhaley as well because I don't live too far from there. So that thing crossed my mind a couple of days ago as I drove by. So as much as I don't know the answer, I'll see what I can find out. Because yeah. that's a good question. Yes, because I, I actually, I, I did like speak to somebody down City Hall and uh, they couldn't even give me an answer. Like early, I, was, I said, well, if they are responsible and they're not doing it, what's your part in it all? Because this is our city. We are paying taxes. So do you have the authority to go into these developers and say, hey, you've got to do something? Because down here, it's all, I love townhouses. That's what I'm living in. Yeah. So I'm not a, just a bungalow so I can go around to my property and, and do what I need to do. I mean, we've got traps right through the house. And every day, if not every second day, in particular since the early part of May, we're getting a mouse every day. Yeah. Uh, You know what, Sharon? I bet you the answer is no. There's nothing, no responsibility. And I'm not even sure how that rodent control would work effectively or pragmatically. And I'm sure the city, because I've asked the city about that in the past, you know, whether there's a certain level of rodent infestation that leads to a health problem, because then they would be forced to react. Unfortunately, we have heard through pest control companies and what have you, that St. John's, I hate saying this because I live in St. John's, uh, St. John's is the sees the most rodent activity, rats included, anywhere in Atlantic Canada, which really makes my skin crawl, but that's Mm -hmm. the reality we're dealing with. So let me follow up with the department, because at some point it can become a health problem. It Uh, it just can. Yes, and I I am really concerned because, I mean, it's only myself, my husband. My husband has medical issues, and and, and I have a little little small dog. He's he's on patrol all the time. He's he's a a silky terrier, so they were brave to hunt rodents. (laughs) And, well, I mean, not that it's, it's not funny, but uh, that's how we really first started to notice because he started patrolling areas that you would because they moist do tend to run up against walls and they go in the closets and areas like that 
and it's really difficult to try to find out where they're coming from when you've got a multi-level home uh, where we're too fortunately for us we don't have a basement so we're only dealing with two floors not not three but um, the issue is when you when you're in a block of six homes and you do realize that other people are having the same problem if everybody's not on the same page and not doing what they need to do to try to eliminate it because it's not just one person I, I know if I have it everybody else has it or to some degree and we had been talking to some of the neighbors who had been experiencing it and they never had the issue before so you know, you can set traps. We're bringing in PCO as soon as we can get a hold of somebody. And uh, But in the meantime, I mean, I don't want to be putting uh, poison out around, not only because we have stray cats down in this part of town. Unfortunately, that's a problem, too, that the city is not dealing with themselves. They're taking it on the owner's responsibility, the homeowner, to go get a trap and, and trap these cats. It's, it's nonsensical down here. And it's really upsetting to see a lot of animals being dumped or just wandering off and not coming back. And I know for a fact that Robin Hood Bay dump is full of cats. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's everybody's responsibility to keep their areas clean, their gardens clean. Down here, I mean, because what we have in this area, you have to be extra clean and careful over your property. And if you get some of these homes that are rented, uh, not everybody is willing to follow those rules, and, uh, and but it is a rule. I mean, it's it's the responsibility of the homeowner to do that. But, I mean, we have storm sores up behind our house. I have an easement in my driveway, and I'm the only one in Virginia Park that I know of. It's the sewer runs through that. So if there's a backup in one of these houses on my block, it comes up in my driveway. And I've had issues with it over the years. It's been good uh, the past few years. But, like, the thing is, when people are living here long term, they know what they have to deal with down here. And that's fine. But you have to be responsible. So it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a bigger thing. It's a domino sure. effect. And it I is. Just, I, I, I do have to get to the news. But very, like, you're, you're right. Unless all hands in the neighborhood are on side, because all a rat needs is water and food. They'll right. go wherever. But, that's like, it. if my neighbor has a bird feeder they don't pay any attention to, then I can do all I want on my property, but I'm still going to get the impact of the rats that they've attracted with their yes. bird feeder or whatever else. Uh, I appreciate the time. I will follow up on this one. I don't know how far I'll get, but I'll give it a shot. Okay, thanks very much. Thank for you, Sharon. You, t- you take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's an interesting question. It's across my mind when I drove past Bally Haley. Here you go. A female rat typically births six litters a year, consisting up to 12 rat pups, more normally between five and 10. Rats reach sexual maturity after nine weeks, meaning that a population can swell from two rats to around 1,250 in one year. Let's take a break. Talk away. Oh, when we come back, the Director of Research and Quality Assurance in the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner for Newfoundland and Labrador, Sean Murray. He was the chief investigator or the lead investigator into the cyber attack of the Meditech system. Mr. Murray, right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the Director of Research and Quality Assurance in the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner for Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Sean Murray. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for making time for the program. No problem. This is an interesting piece of work for your organization, your office, to do. When we're doing something like the high-level cyber investigation that you had to undertake, mm-hmm. did you have to bring in outside experts or support, or do you have that type of uh, talent or staff on hand? 
Um, no, our expertise is mainly about uh, statutory interpretation right. of the legislation. So we did bring in uh, cybersecurity consultants based in the Ottawa Gatineau region. So when you begin, so what is the starting point for the investigation? Because we know a lot about the outcomes. How do you get into when it infiltrated the system in the Trojan horse, or do we know how it got in? Where does it start? Well, we, we do pretty much know all of the ins and outs of that, or we have we have learned about that in the course of our investigation. Um, you know, shortly after the cyber attack occurred, um, the Center for Health Information um, engaged in, uh, with outside parties to do forensic analysis and, and find out exactly what happened. So one of the things, first things that we tasked our cybersecurity consultants with was when, when we obtained those forensic reports, we had uh, our consultants review them and so that we could verify that the work that was done uh, was done well in terms of uh, responding to the cyber attack and identifying what the cause and the source of it was. And, you know, we've, we're satisfied with with that part of it um, and uh, so yeah we understand how that happened what do we know about specifically what was told to the Department of Health Community Services in 2020 a full year prior or more than a year prior to the cyber attack about the vulnerabilities do we have any specifics that we can talk about yep um, so uh, you know that's specifically in in uh, September of 2020, an information note was sent from the Center for Health Information to the Department of Health and Community Services indicating that the, uh, the likelihood of a cyber attack uh, was high. So this was a, what's called a threat assessment. Uh, so the likelihood of a, of a cyber attack was high, and also they predicted that the impact of such an attack would be high. Now that was in 2020, but even prior to that, uh, in 2019, the Center for Health Information received, they contracted with uh, Deloitte to do an assessment of cybersecurity across the province. Because in 2017, the minister had directed the Center for Health Information to take over uh, information security and information technology for all of the regional health authorities across the province. And so in preparing for that, the center uh, asked Deloitte to do this assessment. So the, the Deloitte assessment uh, indicated that there were a number of cybersecurity vulnerabilities across the health system and they provided a roadmap and, and, and basically said you know here here's a, a bunch of things you need to do to rectify this and between 2019 and the date of the cyber attack certainly inadequate progress was made on those things not all of the the projects were tackled and the ones they did take on uh, were, were you know done to a low rate of completion so that was uh, our again our 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 cybersecurity consultants were able to review those documents and make sure we understood what was being said and, and that was our conclusion. Can you help us elaborate on what you're defining as inadequate? Um, well, the, you know, cybersecurity experts will you know list you know a number of standard features you need in uh, in a uh, information system to ensure that it's protected against cyber attacks. And so this is what the the Deloitte report would have, uh, the Deloitte assessment would have, uh, you know, reviewed to see, sort of reviewing to see whether whether they had all the, di the different ingredients that are needed for that security. And they found that, you know, they were, they were not in place or were inadequately in place. Let's talk about the concerns that your office has with the timeliness of public notification. Right. Well, I mean, there's there's two there mainly. Um, one is that at the outset of the, you know, when the cyber attack was first being announced to the public, um, 
there was some back and forth between the uh, the department, which kind of took 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 the lead, I guess, on uh, communicating with the public. Department of Health and Community Services. There was some, um, you know, back and forth between them and the media about whether the information had simply been accessed by the cyber attackers or was taken or stolen by the cyber attackers. And uh, there was a. a, a a, a reluctance, I think, to admit that the uh, the information had, in fact, been taken. Uh, for, for certainly in the in the early days of the announcement, um, they were sort of relying on the word accessed. And even when they did eventually, uh, after after a number of days, uh, sort of admit that it had been stolen, they they didn't do it initially in the public briefings. It was sort of uh, in a sort of uh, separate and media interviews that were sort of where, where it was sort of admitted uh, on a Friday kind of thing and, and, and it didn't really get incorporated into the messaging for a while after that. But that so that's a small part of it. But the bigger part of it, I think, was that it took, um, you know, roughly 500 days for them to even acknowledge that this was a ransomware attack. And, you know, in, as part of our investigation, we asked them, you know, uh, we asked them in January of 2023, <clears throat> excuse me, why, uh, why, why the delay? Why would they not want to disclose that fact that it was a ransomware attack? And uh, when we got their response in April of 2023, last month, they, they simply said, oh, well, we just disclosed that fact in March of 2023, last month. Um, and we said, well, you know, and obviously our question was, you know, why did you wait um, from October 2021 until 2023 to, to explain that to the public? And they didn't answer that question. And unfortunately, that was the case with, with some of our questions in this investigation, um, that they simply either didn't answer or provided sort of, you know, inadequate answers like that one. What do you think the significance is as to whether or not in the timeliness when the public was told that it was indeed a ransomware attack? Right. Well, I mean, the, the, for one, it's a it's a requirement under our statutes, under our laws, the Personal Health Information Act and the Access to Information Protection of Privacy Act, to notify affected individuals of a privacy breach at the first reasonable opportunity. And when you do notify people, you have to tell them the relevant information so that they can assess their risks and take you know whatever whatever measures they feel are appropriate. For example, the uh, the health authorities have uh, very appropriately offered uh, credit monitoring services through Equifax to anyone who is concerned and, and wishes to avail of that. So you can contact uh, Eastern Health or one of the other health authorities uh, to find out the contact information to, uh, to get set up for that if you haven't already done so. Is part of the work, you know, considering post-attack, about, you know, red flags were not dealt with in an adequate fashion. Mm -hmm. Now, you do go point out that there's been substantial effort, significantly enhanced protections for cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. The people that you brought in to aid in this investigation, what's their level of comfort of where we are now? Um, I think pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, it was certainly emphasized uh, that, you know, this is this is an ongoing project, and you know partly it's also resources. Like for for example, like when you're uh, you know part part of cybersecurity is like an ongoing monitoring situation too as well. So you're not sort of missing those alerts that are popping up. That you've got qualified people that can assess. Uh, you know, when you've got an alert and what to do with it, and what it means, and and what action is required, and things like that. So you have to have the appropriate resources in place and, and knowledgeable people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, th 
a lot of good work has been done. They have a they have sort of a roadmap, a, a set of projects that they're working through. They've gotten a more recent assessment done by an outside consultant called Gartner that has given them sort of further refined the, uh, the you know what they should the next steps they should be taking to enhance cybersecurity for the province. So when one of our recommendations was that they uh, they fully fund those projects and ensure that they're completed within the time frame of their plan. Inside the 200 gigabytes of data that, as it says in the news story, paralyzed the province's health system, you do go on to say that the the number of p- people that have their information compromised, we may never know. Yep. Is it safe to assume that in the various, you know, Central Health from 2006 mm-hmm. and Grenfell, Labrador Grenfell 13, Eastern Health 2010, yep. is it safe to assume that every single person's piece of personal information, medically speaking, has been compromised? No. Um, so, uh, there, you know, even though... Uh, information, personal information or personal health information of what we, our estimation is the vast majority of the population of the province has been taken. It doesn't mean that all of their information has been taken. So in a lot of cases, we're talking about registration information. So they would have things like, you know, name and address and and some of the the basic, um, you know, information that you would give at registration. Um, there was a network drive at Eastern Health that was also, um, information was also taken. Um, and that's sort of a, a broader array of information um, that, that could contain uh, personal health. That would def- definitely did contain some personal health information as well, but it was really varied, um, So, it, but it wouldn't be everyone's. I don't know how long maybe governments had a chance to absorb your 34 findings and six recommendations, Mm -hmm. but what kind of commitment have we heard already from government about full implementation of the six recommendations, all of which make a ton of sense to me? Yeah. Um, I I, I haven't... I can't say that I've, uh, you know, attended any all of the any of the scrums of, of the ministers that have responded or anything like that. So I'm not sure what their responses are to date, but they are required to respond uh, within two weeks of the issuance of our report to the recommendations. So we're looking forward to that. Appreciate uh, your time this morning and the work that your office does. Thank you, Sean. You're welcome. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sean Murray, Director of Research and Quality Assurance with the Office of Information and Privacy Commissioner. Let's go to six before we go to the break. Joanne, you're on the air. Hi, Joanne. Hello. Hello. Yes. Yes, I just wanted to inform that uh, there's a baby cat loose here on side the highway going towards part of the bus. Don't seem like it has any mother. Would people be advised and watch out for this little cat? So, uh, how close to Port of Basque is this uh, moose on this this calf on the side of the before, before you get to the starlight. Okay, and obviously it would be particularly skittish, so be very, yes. very aware as you drive through that area. I appreciate the warning, Joanne. Yes. Th- okay, then. Thanks for calling. Okay, right. thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You're welcome. Yeah, we're always going to be aware of moose, but those calves, especially if orphaned, might be particularly antsy, so watch your bobber in that area. Let's take a break. Thankfully, there's someone who picked up on the Ted Williams commentary off the top. Fred's in the, there to talk about the Ted Williams visit to the province back in 1985. I've been since shared a couple of terrific pictures. Then we're going to talk about pot the plate with the snow crab. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Fred. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not bad, boy. Good. I've got a bit of a cold, so I'll bear with me. Hang tough. Okay, you wanted to know something about Ted Williams? 
Yeah, I was just talking about the fact that it was on this date in 1941. He rose his average above 400. Of course, went on and hit 406 that year. I just thought it was interesting, so I threw it out there. And, of course, his visit to the province. What do you know? Well, uh, I'm uh, the manager of the St. John's uh, Master Softball League website, right? And a couple of years ago, uh, we put together uh, a story on uh, or basically a bunch of pictures on our website there of Ted's visit back in 84. Now, Ted was brought in here. At the time, uh, uh, we had just uh, dedicated our uh, our softball pitch up behind Elizabeth Towers to uh, a guy, uh, Bill Rowell. And Bill was a big Boston Red Sox fan. And uh, when... Uh, Basically, what what the boys did at the time, they they uh, phoned the Boston Red Sox and said, "Can you get Carl Yastrzemski up here cool. to open the open the field?" And they said, "No, we can't do that, but we can get uh, Ted Williams to come up." <laughs> now, Ted was basically, uh, I think, what the attraction for Ted was. He was a big fly fly fisherman, right? So the boys got him up, and they treated him to, uh, after after he did everything up there, he treated him to a fishing trip up in Labrador. With so. uh, Red Ryan and Fang Dowden. Yeah, that's right. So it was all, you know, it was... It was uh, it was uh, interesting at the time. Uh, it was quite a coup to have him come up here, really. Well, I mean, an absolute legend, a two-time Triple Crown winner, six times uh, he led the league in batting, and, I mean, four times led him in home runs, 19-time All-Star. I mean, it's just remarkable that the splendid splinter came to town. Oh, and, and you can look at the pictures on the website. Uh, the man was like he, he had a, there was an aura about him like he was like a John Wayne figure he was he was quite a quite a quite a gentleman right well, no doubt. And, I mean, not only the career of Williams, but just imagine what he might have accomplished with, whether it be topping his 521 home runs. Twice took a break to represent his country in the armed forces, the Navy and in the Marine Corps. So just unbelievable life. Oh, you know, exceptional, right? And some of the pictures there on the on the site, he brought up his son John, uh, John Henry, who, like, unfortunately, in later life, that that became a bit of an issue, right? Or after all the issues about his passing, right? But uh, it, it was an interesting story to have him up here, definitely. And he saw everybody. He went to City Hall and and met with uh, Mayor Murphy and. It was it was quite something, and he was very accommodating to all the Rowell family. Right, there's a picture on the site of him with uh, all the all the the members of the family. Right, is the website sjmasters.ca? Yeah, that's right. I don't know if you can get access to it, but uh, yeah, we're you know we just started our season actually the, the last night, so we're. I just popped it open. While we're right. talking. So he actually went to a banquet at the Leicester Hotel that evening, uh, was the guest speaker there, and, of course, it talks about the fishing trip. And then there's some, I mean, it's a great website if you're talking about the history. The paragraph right under the documentation of the fishing trip, Martin's Lounge won the championship of the initial season at Royal Park in 83 and in 84, third championship in a row. Kingsbridge Hotel won the Ted Williams year of 1985, Fireside Inn won in 86, and Alpha Pizza in 87. Great stuff. Yeah, no, we got our history goes right back, and uh, if you if you went into the site, you could see um, there's stories 
related to the, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention the Evening Telegram. Sure, of course you are. But anyway, uh, there's stories there from from back then, right on Bill Rowell and Ted Williams and Robin Short's uh, right up on them. It's it's quite extensive. I think it's great. I'm going to read this other paragraph, too, because it's remarkable. I know where the ballpark is. I'm an Eastender. It used to be called Kent Place Park. It was, of course, Kent Place is that cul-de-sac right alongside the ballpark. So, in 1983, Dave Barrett... The late Dave Barrett, friend of mine. City Council threw out the first pitch that season he had done since the start of the league. That year, eight teams in the league. Kingsbridge Hotel, Wometco, which of course was Coca-Cola, uh, Joe's Place, the Bowl and Beer, the Hotel Newfoundland, Jane's Ultramar, Harvey's Oil, Martin's Lounge, and Dowden's Electric. Over the course of that of the next few seasons, registration at the time, 50 bucks. During that season, three rookies from the Edmonton Oilers, Paul Coffey, Kevin Lowe, and Mark Messier were in attendance at a game. Messier threw out the first pitch while Lowe and Coffey entered entertained in the field that's cool yeah oh it's there there was a lot of history you know going right back i tell you i think that year 83 messier was here because he had a hockey camp up at twin rinks which i attended well that's pretty good yeah <laughs> pretty cool his sister was actually an aerobics teacher who did some off-ice training with us as well fred i'm really pleased that you call i'm going to have a good pour over your website later on thanks for this yeah no sweat patty Uh, Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. So you want to see the pictures? sjmasters.ca. Also a picture sent along by my good buddy Darren Colburn, one of the finest athletes the province has ever produced. uh, He was playing for the Terranovas in preparation for the Canada Games that year. And there's a great picture of Ted Williams giving Colburn some hitting tips. Good stuff. Let's take a break. Pam Patton is next. She's the president of CNL. We're going to talk about the proposed Pot the Plate program. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now it's all on the table during your vocm lunch break welcome back to the show let's go to line number one say good morning to the president at cnl that's s-e-a-n-l pam Patton. good morning pam you're on the air good morning patty welcome to the show how's it going i'm doing okay this morning how about yourself not so great this morning actually patty um well we i do want to dive into the part of the plate but if i could just get your attention for a brief moment I don't know if you've been following, but apparently now we've run into the issue that Quincy Royal Greenland is not buying any crab from their under-40 fleet. They're making them wait. So that's, that's a bit of an issue. Like, that's the large part of our fishery is the smaller boats. And right now they have nowhere to sell their, their crab. Other buyers obviously can't pick them up due to uh, the scheduling and, and the issues within themselves. So we have... I'm going to say hundreds, maybe thousands now that can't even fish crab, and they would be of the sector that would need it primarily more than anybody. Um, Been wrapping my head this morning trying to figure out what reasons could a company have to do this, right? Like, it's not science-related, or it would be kind of across the board, so you can take that off the table. Is it a trucking issue um, where they don't want to be spending the money on the trucking because that's the number one complaint for all companies? Um, the plants are spread around the island, so, I mean, if you got to send a truck up for a couple thousand pounds of crab, like, they've always been bothered by that. But if that was the case, well, then couldn't they line up their small boats to land the same time a bigger boat is, kind of put it on the one truck, Right. Or is it more of just eliminating the smaller fishery here now? Like, what what, what would that actually be about, right? Well, I mean, eliminating, I, I hear those sentiments a lot. I don't know. I'm not involved in the, either sector. But eliminating a potential source of product 
doesn't necessarily sound like the best idea unless it's simply going to be backfilled by 65 plus or offshore vessels or what have you so i don't know and is there any time frame offered by quincy royal greenland as to when they will start buying from the 3911s there's some two dates that's been kind of given by people that sell to them. We're hearing June the 5th or June the 11th as a potential start date. Whoa. Only a potential start date to buy from the under 40 sector, right? Okay. Um, that's an issue in 3PS. Um, obviously, people are concerned about running into soft shell now due to our tie-up as such, right? Yeah. Um, but again, like, uh, you know, the union, the provincial government, who, who's coming to bat here? Like, you know, we all got a little bit excited. When our premier came to the party, I'll say, you know, without because just to explain to the general public, um, most people in the fishery obviously know this, that us fishermen are regulated by DFO, which is a federal entity. So our licenses have conditions, and each time you fish a different species, you print your conditions. Almost annually, there may be a new rule or regulation incorporated that you have to follow by. Our provincial government issues licenses to these processors, which it seems they have no rules. It looks at this point. So I think we all got excited when, you know, Mr. Fury came to the table and hoping for some sort of a, an arrangement. But, you know, in, in my personal opinion, it's like he came to the party and went out the back door. Um, you know, they, they signed on an agreement that wasn't even 40% of the earner Berry. Ironically, the day that they signed, we uh, took up membership with Comtel, which is the data analytical company from the U.S. that does the earner Berry based on product going into the U.S. Um, on that particular day, the 40% that fishermen would normally receive would have been $2.51, yet we're locked in at two twenty. We're locked in at that price with bait being two forty, fuel at $2, et cetera. We've been down that road. Um, so does that add up to about 28%? Um, I haven't done the math, but it's certainly not 40 No, it's not, no. So just in a general uh, question, were you supportive of the tie-up? So it's mixed emotion for me because, again, I'm small. Um, I'm not going to catch my crab due to having lobsters going here now in Burgio, but the price, honestly, I wouldn't make anything, right? It wouldn't be. But there are people that are going to have to um, based on petty like EI, right? That, that has become a staple in our fishery, sad to say, but our fisheries have been narrowed down based on markets and what plants want to buy. So while we have multiple species licenses, you can't fish everything because there is no buyers for product, right? Yeah. You know, even the path forward to restructure how prices are set, I don't know if we're ever going to arrive at a place where both sides, I'll call them, the ASP, the FFAW, can agree and will honor it annually, regardless of where the price comes down, whether that be introduction of mediator from outside the province or however it's going to look, or a more defined percentage of market share afforded to either side. But I don't know where it lands, because if we're talking about whether people will get the pot to play, because that's part of it, but it's also the whole concept of outside buyers. I get that competition can indeed drive the price of raw material, to what extent this year probably not a whole lot i don't know if there's reason to believe an outside buyer would come in offering three bucks versus 220 given the fact that the market doesn't seem to really reflect that number at this moment in time because the market doesn't care what anyone in this province thinks regardless of who they support or what they do for a living so i don't know how it moves forward so if you had george Rothers and a seat at that table how does the price setting structure or infrastructure change well here's the thing like this is what we're trying to do at CNL is get all the enterprise owners under one roof because it matters. Our cost to bring this product to the wharf matters. 
and you and and in any business, Patty, if you were going to make picnic tables and you're going to sell it, you're going to make sure your materials to build the table are covered, and then obviously you're going to want to make money for your time. It's any business, but nobody listens to us. We have union representation who doesn't communicate with us. Um, market prices have nothing to do with the cost to bring it to the table, and nothing can survive like that. But how can that be incorporated? That's an interesting thought, and I've heard Greg Pretty speak to that as well, because when you set the market price for whatever, a widget, a doodad, or some snow crab, people are only going to pay what they want to pay. So how that cost was absorbed by whether it be the manufacturing plant and or the car automatic manufacturing plant or the fish harvester, how do you incorporate op- operating costs into end price? Because I'll only pay what I want to pay. If it's too much, I won't buy it. Well, exactly. But I guess that works for anything that, that says they're too buy, right? And most anyone making anything would definitely have to consider their cost of operation or, or producing a product or making a product or whatever, right? right. But I mean, even at this point with inflation and cost of living or the cost of gas or, you know, if there was any subsidy right now. And one of the things that bait being 240 is the minimum I'm hearing, I'm hearing up to 285 for squid, you know, that we're bringing in from another country, right? Like for bait, um, you know, a couple of years ago when squid was really big up central, they said it, it wasn't that good since the 80s. I mean, plants had stopped buying it. And I think the high price was 80 cents to fishermen, yet the next year we're coming back, we're paying over double for bait. So, you know, maybe if we went back to bait sheds on the island, fishermen operated, where we cut our own bait and, and found a way to, you know, even subsidize ourselves, really. Because, you know, that would help. Like if, if the markets are down, then, okay, we have to take that. But, again, having some sort of offset makes all the difference. That makes sense to me. I mean, trying to reduce uh, input costs is a, a tool that you should have available to you as opposed to the ultimate cost of whether it be with fuel and crew and comp and anything else that might be uh, on the table. Let's get the pot to plate, though, before we do run out of time here this morning. Uh, just describe in Cole's notes form exactly what you're proposing. So pot to plate is something that we've, uh, it's really just an idea and we're offering to help. Um, it's just to, you know, put the general public in communications with fisher people so they can buy product directly from the war fresh um, with higher price than the fishermen are getting, um, obviously, but cheaper than they would ever get it on the market or in, in the local stores, right? Okay, and the, the suggested price would be at five bucks a pound, and harvesters would leave it up to themselves what they would want to charge, whether it be directed to a restaurant or an individual, however they're going to sell it. What percentage of the catch are you suggesting should be available for this type of program? Well, that would depend on the harvester themselves. Like a lot of small insured, you know, they can't part with product because they need EI. Now, obviously, EI is something that maybe you could figure out um, over time, but we don't have time to educate people on how to do that so this would they would have to consider obviously what earnings they need for ei and what they can spare um but i know for myself if i do get at mine obviously i'd even 500 pounds um for me local at five dollars versus 220 i mean 220 i think it's 1100 dollars at five dollars is 2500 i mean that's my bait paid for and a portion of my fuel you know, for the 500 pounds off of my 4,400 pound quota. So it makes a difference, but it's going to come back to the individual on who can or who would want to participate, right? What is the, I think I I know the answer to this one, but I'll ask it for the listener. What's the current state of your ability to sell direct, not to the processor, but right to the restaurant, right to an individual? What are you allowed to do by legislation right now? 
The restrictions are not on us. The restrictions actually fall onto the restaurant, and I think it will be the same as like a grocery store. I think they're limited to 300 pounds per week of product. But again, it's not going to be on the fishermen if somebody lies and comes and buys it under their personal name. I wouldn't suggest that, but that's their, like they know the rules. They know what they have to abide by. Okay. And I'll, I guess I'll put that to a restaurateur. Uh, anything else you want to talk about while we have you this morning, Pam? No, I think we've covered the bases. I will tell you, though, that I just ordered crab through Pots Plate for myself. Sounds silly, right? But we're not doing it yet. So uh, I was really looking forward to a meal. So I have 30 pounds for my supper. Good to be like you. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take care. You too, bye. All right, Pam Patton. She's the president at CNL. It is a, in some form, a, a very complicated industry. Some might even say a bit convoluted. But when you have two distinct different levels of government involved, a DFO and the province, and she makes an interesting point, and she's absolutely right, the harvesters, they get their licensing and oversight and monitoring from DFO. The processing sector, licenses are granted and approved, sales and otherwise, by the province. With those distinct disconnects, you're long going to have some problems that are going to be difficult to solve. It's all bad enough if you're trying to uh, solve the oversight of one level of government. Incorporate two different levels? Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, Wayne's got an issue trying to find a wheelchair. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. Uh, Yes. Good morning, Pat. Uh, My name is Wayne Harris. I had my leg amputated during the second of may and the only thing is holding me up for going home right now is a wheelchair my wife and myself were on the phone all day yesterday phoning everybody that we knew that we could contact or to try to find out if i could get a wheelchair to be able to get it at this hospital where i'm doing to send you we're not having no luck so a friend of mine last night give me your number to phone you and see if you can help out. So you just need a wheelchair for your visit to the hospital? No. You, I need, a, you need a wheelchair, period? I need a wheelchair if it's uh, just a loaner until I can afford to get one uh, to get from the hospital to be able to go home. Okay, I just want to make 100% sure I know where we are. Are you at home now or in the hospital? I'm in the hospital right now. Okay. And the hospital or public health is unable to provide a wheelchair so you can get home? I can't get no satisfaction. They're saying that they got no wheelchairs. Really? Uh, But we've been told, that's what the wife's been told. And uh, I'm using one here now belong to the hospital. Uh, With one foot, I pulled myself along. And my other foot, well, he's a nuisance. Well, my leg, my leg is chopped off up, down was up to a knee. Oh my goodness! So, uh, and pardon me, what sp- uh, specific hospital are you in? I'm in the Placentia Hospital. Okay, in Placentia. Yeah. 
Okay. I know people in the area, whether it be out in Dunville or close by and in Placentia. So what we need is someone who can loan uh, Wayne a wheelchair so that he can make his way home. Obviously, if the hospital is unable to provide, which is a strange thing for the hospital to be unable to provide. So can someone let me know if you're close by Placentia and can indeed do this, even in the form of a loaner, a self-propelled wheelchair, let me know and I'll take care of getting it delivered to the hospital on behalf of you. And if uh, they didn't want too much money, if I could afford it to buy it of them, I would. I'm a senior citizen, and I would like to get out of the hospital and get home because home is never like this. No, I, I understand. Do you have anyone at home when you arrive? Do you live yes, alone or have family? No, I have my wife there. Okay. So the plea is out. Wheelchair, we need one. In placentia, deliver to the hospital. We'll get Wayne's. I'll put you on hold, Wayne, and we'll get your last name too, just in case we need to do some very specific labeling to get this wheelchair to you. I'll do what I can for you. Good enough. Thank you, Pat. I appreciate this, Wayne. Good luck. I'm going to put you on hold. You'll speak with David or Sarah. Yeah, let's see. Uh, anyone in the region? You know, whether it's a wheelchair that one of your family members had and is no longer using or maybe has passed on and you want to put it in Wayne's hands so he can get home, let's do exactly that this morning. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Donald. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Uh, the, the caller that you're just speaking about the wheelchair. Yeah. Uh, I've been in the same situation. My, uh, my wife had an amputation. Uh, it's not as simple as saying you need a wheelchair. It's you need an amputee's wheelchair, or they won't release you from the hospital. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, so I'm glad you filled in that blank. Yeah, that's why I called. Uh, so, like an amputee's wheelchair is basically a normal wheelchair, but it has a, a it has a leg for your stump to rest on. Okay, that makes sense. And then, and then the other thing they look at is they'll look at the person's physical size, you know, if if you're average size or larger or smaller. Uh, but I, I know from when my wife was in the hospital, they would not let her leave the hospital unless she had an actual amputee's wheelchair. You know, when it's a requirement of the system, it's a wonder they don't have uh, something like that for the patients upon discharge, even if it's just to get them home where they can either work with an insurance provider or with orthopedic supplies and get an amputee wheelchair. It just seems strange that, you know, we'll occupy a bed with someone yeah. who can indeed be home because the system can't provide a wheelchair just to get them home. It's, uh, yeah. it's a bit strange. And uh, I'll tell you, now, in our specific situation, it's, well, it's the same thing. This was six or seven years ago. Uh, we ended up having to rent one in Halifax for her to get home for a few days until the one we had ordered arrived. And it actually was her surgeon actually found the wheelchair for us in Halifax. Are they that hard to come by? Uh, no, it's they're not. They're, it's, it depends on what it is. If it's a normal, average-sized person, they're easy to get. It's just you need the parts. Like if it's a right leg or a left leg, you know, the thing needs to be set up and adjusted. And it's only like a little ledge or, or like a small table kind of thing that your stump rests on. Yeah. But uh, like I said, I know the hospitals just won't let you out without it. And, you know, like everything, nothing is cheap. But uh, I'm wondering if maybe someplace like the Hub would have something, or even, I, I doubt Red Cross would, but like the Hub should probably be able to point them in the right direction. Yeah, right? it's on my list. Uh, we got a relationship with Tom, and I was going to get someone to give Tom a shout and see if they can't help us out. Oh, Dave Williams just whispered in my ear, just talk to him. Uh, so we're okay. going to see if Tom and the Hub can help us out. 
Yeah, so I, I just wanted to put it out there that, you know, there are a few extra specifications here. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I never even thought of it, Donald, because I don't think I've even seen an orthopedic, or, or pardon me, an amputee wheelchair. Yeah, it's exactly the same as a normal wheelchair. Well, I could picture it now, yeah. Extra add on, add-ons, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's it's. And I just wanted to call because if somebody showed up now with a standard wheelchair, it's nine chance out of ten I'm willing to bet the hospital won't let this person go home because it doesn't have that extra feature. <laughs> it's a helpful piece of information, and I'm glad you called. But Wayne kind of uh, intimated that he's going around in the hospital with a regular wheelchair. So, yeah, and that's, what and that's what he was saying. It was, it was, you know, he's pushing himself around with the one foot. Right. And and uh, you know, you're not. I know from experience, you're not supposed to let the stump hang unless, you know, in, in my situation with my wife, you know, she was just after having her amputation. I don't know his situation. Maybe he had his amputation, you know, years ago or months ago or what have you. But uh, all that stuff plays a part of this, right? I appreciate the info. Helpful. Thank you. Yes. All right. No problem. Thank you. Thanks, Donald. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Bye. Yeah, that makes sense to me because, you know, and thankfully he called because if someone out of their good nature in Placentia or Donville or wherever made their way to the hospital to try to help Wayne out with a regular wheelchair and it was of no value, that would have been a problem. Okay. Lady called earlier worried about the uptick in the rodents in her neighborhood down in Virginia Park, given the earth breaking and the work being done to accommodate a new penitentiary on the White Hills. It's a buddy of mine who's in the construction business sent me this bit of info. Most new developments that we go to, that go to the owner, the developer, they're responsible for pest control. Usually pest control comes in, puts a bunch of multiple traps around, the ones with the poison inside. They come back weekly to check and restock the traps. The government enforces this on private developers, but not sure if it's required on government sites, as usual. So there you go. Cake and eat it too kind of stuff. So if I'm a private developer, the government will check up on me to be ensured that I'm doing the appropriate level of pest control, but we don't know whether or not government holds themselves to the same standards when it's a government work site, and in this case, the replacement for Her Majesty's Penitentiary. So we'll follow up with the Gov and see if they do indeed have to do what they make the private developer or do. Would you like me to take whatever that is on line number one, David? All right. So a couple of things uh, in regards to our conversation with Sean Murray, who's the delegate representing the uh, officer, the, the officer of the Information and Privacy Commissioner, and specifically he's the Director of Research and Quality Assurance. I don't know. We talk about accountability all the time, right? So when we are told, based on their investigation and the cyber experts that they brought in to a company, because they do statutory review, don't necessarily have that type of expertise in-house, so I'm glad he gave us that piece of information. But if the department was told in 2020 that the system was vulnerable and there was inadequate attention given to and no completion of any of the vulnerabilities to be shored up or secured, what does that mean? It's fine for us to get these reports, but if we don't know if there's going to be anyone or anything or any entity held accountable for it, because we could have hundreds of thousands of people's information compromised, and where they go with that information remains to be seen. Equifax and credit monitoring is one thing, but at some point that runs out, and it's not like the cyber attackers aren't watching the news to see how long some of that protection is being afforded to people. Anyway, quick one before I get to the news line, one Ted, you're on the air. Uh, Patty, there is a program there for uh, free wheelchairs in rural Avalon. Okay. Uh, 
I'll give you the phone number. 709-786-5217. Who's that? That's uh, Eastern Health. Okay. Eastern Health has a problem. uh, uh, community health net and they actually pay for wheelchairs not for people we will pass that along to Wayne hopefully they've got an amputee wheelchair so the poor man can go home out of it okay thank you thanks a lot Ted appreciate it so uh, do we have a number that we can reconnect with Wayne or was he just using a pay phone or something at the uh, at the hospital okay so Eastern Health has a program to accommodate we will get that information to him alright let's take a break for the news when we come back plenty of time for you don't go away Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Yesterday afternoon, the Auditor General's Office released their most recent performance audit of the province's food inspection and licensing program. The Auditor General for Newfoundland and Labrador is Denise Hanrahan and joins us on line number one. Good morning, Denise. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, th- I appreciate you making time, and as usual, there's always lots to get to when your office brings forward a report. Let's start first with inspections. What did you find in the period between 2019 and 21? We found that um, there were a percentage of inspections that weren't completed across the island, um, and we uh, did mention uh, for, let's say, for example, the fiscal year that ended in March of 2020, there was almost 16% of those inspections that weren't completed. And that equates to over a 1,000 food premises inspections that weren't completed. And many of those food premises would have been categorized as meeting or high health risk. So uh, help us understand, like, I don't know how this happens, because is there not a formal process to hit minimum, pardon me, minimum inspection requirements? Is it a human resources issue? Are they simply not keeping an eye on the process? What goes on? So the Department of Health does define the process by which they want the food uh, licensing and inspection to happen. There are minimum inspections required per year, and it's close to about 8,000 a year across the island. They're categorized based on risk, so low, medium, or high, or if it's a seasonal operation. And then because of the way that, I guess, ultimately the food premises are distributed across the province, the work is distributed across regional offices through digital government and service NL. Um, And we found that each year there were less inspections completed than that minimum amount. Um, While we did find when they found a critical hazard, they dealt with it. What we find was if you're not doing all the inspections, there may be hazards you're not even aware of. When they designate uh, levels of risk, what's that based on? Is it like, for instance, an abattoir would necessarily fall into one level of risk or are there specifics different right across the board or the landscape? So there is a series of factors that the Department of Health and Community Service requires them to assess through a risk questionnaire. And it takes into account things like the type of food preferred, how familiar they are with the process, do they have procedures to deal with food storage, those kinds of things. And they give them a series of scores or points, um, and then they fall out uh, of that score. So if they've had, for example, previous issues that may make them of higher risk, and they will tend to go back and do an inspection again. So if you're considered a high risk um, as a food premises, they could visit you four times a year. Okay, and I'll back out abattoir because that would fall under Canada Food Inspection Agency. Okay, so does inspection go hand in glove with licensing or are they two, albeit certainly distinct overlap, or are they two different things? 
they're two different things. I mean, the licensing is really specific to um, new premises or changes that occur at the premises level. And so that part of the program, when we went through it, we found that for the majority of premises we tested, they did have licenses per the legislation. Um, and we did find sometimes, though, there were lags or delays in getting a license um, or some issues with documentation. The inspections are more carried out than once you have a license, in addition to your, I guess, your initial in, you know, uh, inspection you would have had to get the license. And that's then carried on annually going forward. When we talk about oversight, we probably already have addressed this in the conversation so far. With oversight lacking, are there specifics inside the recommendations to improve oversight? Yeah, that's our number one recommendation. It's very specific to deal with um, suggesting that the Department of Health and Community Services establish processes to ensure effective oversight. At the end of the day, they have the mandate and responsibility for public health. This is a part of that mandate. Um, and when you have someone else deliver your program, it is important that you have effective oversight so you know that the program is being delivered how you want it delivered, when, and according to your policy. Okay. So... Inside this world, when we have two government departments, there's always going to be concerns about the left hand and the right hand, the synergies or the lack of cooperation or understanding. How do we, what do we need to know about the relationship in this envelope between the Department of Health and Digital Government Service and Health? What do we, what's going on there? What do we have, need to understand? We did find that there were gaps in the communication and there was missed opportunities to improve communication. Um, as you said, when you have two parties doing different roles, you need to be able to communicate. So currently in the Memorandum of Understanding, which is in essence the contract between the two parties to say who does what, uh, hasn't been updated since 1999. But that memorandum required that there would be an annual report. We found that the Department of Digital Government Service and L hadn't provided that uh, on time. Also, we found that is an annual report enough? Uh, you know, if the statistics show in the annual report that the inspections are not getting completed, if there is concerns with respect to dealing with customer complaints and the management of that, um, then there needs to be more communication on a more frequent basis between the two departments, and that's some of the findings we found that would actually be uh, improvements in the programs. So the departments have understood and accepted that they need to clean up their act or to tighten up the oversight or to improve the service. But when it comes for the opportunity to make a complaint, I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't a formal process or an established process for people to do exactly that. What are you recommending there and how would that look? So we recommend that they look at that and that they, uh, you know, decide if there is more that can be done. We did note in our report that some other jurisdictions do have better mechanisms that are more transparent and allow the public to call a toll-free line or use an online service. And they also have the ability to search the databases more. In some cases, they have colored systems. In some cases, they have um, different manners of which to get to the public. The reality is an inspection is a point in time and it's a valuable tool. However, noncompliance can happen at any time. And the public plays a role in that, that there may be something that if the public was to tell the departments, that may need action before the next inspection. 
We also spoke with Sean Murray from the Office of Information and Privacy Commissioner's Office. He was the lead investigator on the cyber attack and talked about recommendations. Describe to folks exactly how recommendations work because you are answerable to the House of Assembly, not to one minister or another, or not directly to the Premier. When recommendations are made, what's the process to follow up and to hold government to account for whether or not they fully or in part implement what you recommend? For the Office of the Auditor General, we do table our reports in the House of Assembly. It is a formal process, and we ultimately do brief the Public Accounts Committee, and they often will take our recommendations and connect back with the various entities we may have audited. For us, our uh, influence over the process is to continue to report, and we now will be reporting annually on outstanding recommendations. Our recent monitoring report that we released last month showed that one in three of our recommendations since 2014 hasn't been implemented fully or otherwise rectified. So for us, the next, other than us reporting it uh, in the, in you know, publicly and, and having people like you bring attention to it and keep pressure on the issue, the next stage of that for us is the Public Accounts Committee and what actions they may take, um, but ultimately they are recommendations. And so for us, it's if they're completed or otherwise resolved, because sometimes programs change, sometimes recommendations that were relevant at one point in time may change. So we, we try to be very fair, but the reality of it is there is value in our recommendations. We are cold eyes. We have a very standardized process method by which we follow to gain evidence. This is not subjective. And so the recommendations are really meant to improve accountability and improve program delivery. Do any specific recommendations, whether it be the work you've done with adult custody or corrections or NALCOR, that are left unimplemented that you'd like the public to be made aware of? So we did find in our report that we recently released that, you know, over 80% were older than six years old for the outstanding ones. Um, and those topics that remain in that shape are still very relevant topics um, and certainly affect every person in our province. We feel that those recommendations are certainly still have merit because we have talked to those departments and entities within the last few months and they have confirmed that they're not completed. So I'm talking programs like personal care homes, provincial home support, road ambulance, road quality, salaried physicians, student transportation. I mean, it's a wide variety of topics where there are recommendations outstanding. Everything from dealing with conflict of interest, which came from the Newfoundland Labrador Liquor Corp recommendation, uh -huh. all the way to the training of drivers for school buses. And if they're not fully implemented and, and we're not satisfied that there is a reason why it's not fully implemented, our intention is to continue to report it. Uh, last question before I let you go. Have you already started your work uh, auditing or the performance audit at Memorial University? Yeah, we've been at Memorial since last year. Actually, it takes us several months to do our audit plan, and then we go into audit execution. We should be concluding our audit execution phase now over the summer, and our intention is to release our three audits because our initial audit really has three different subjects uh, this fall. And what are the three subjects? So the three subjects look at compensation for particular groups, executive and senior management. It's, it's not really driving into the academics on that part. And we have engaged Corn Ferry as an external consultant to give us advice similar to what we did with Nalcor Energy. 
we are looking at discretionary expenses, particularly those that, again, are more connected to corporate or admin functions within Memorial. And the third area we're looking at is oversight or how decisions are made by the board, how information flows to the board for the consolidated entity, which is Memorial University. It's a very large entity with many pieces. So we're looking at that as a third piece. I said I was going to let you go. One more quick one. When we look at compensation, is that a, uh, an operation about comparisons to other presidents at other similar-sized universities or how the contracts arrived at? What specifically are we going to learn about compensation? So similar to what we did with NALCOR, we use an outside expert to look at the classification of a position um, because we are not qualified to say whether a position in one entity is comparable to another. So they have a methodology that they use that gives us that good independent assessment that these jobs are equal. Then we will compare the salary and benefits paid to that position across the public sector. And we will provide that information in our report and most times recommendations similar to what we did with NALCOR is for government to look at what is appropriate in the public sector with respect to compensation for like positions. Um, and that flows not just in salary, but also to benefits. And we, you know, one of our outstanding recommendations that we brought up in our monitoring last month dealt with the fact that government got a cabinet directive in 2010 to look at compensation policy, and it remains outstanding in 2023. What do you know? I appreciate the time this morning, Denise. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Denise Hanrahan is the province's Auditor General. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what Julia sees on the East Coast Trail. And then we're going to speak with a John Lewis Patton Distinguished University Professor of Psychology, Biology, and Ocean Sciences. Basically, people think that Bill Montebecki is a seabird researcher. He's going to join us to talk about avian flu. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to Memorial University Professor of Psychology, Biology, and Ocean Sciences, seabird research, Bill Montebecki. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. That's a real tongue-tire, isn't it, Daddy? I particularly like the John Lewis Patton Distinguished University Professor announcement. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah, that that was yeah, yeah that was yeah yeah that's great. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I really like that one. But anyway, Patty, you wanted to talk about the flu and uh, things for hunters, right? Um, yes. Well, let's start with just the presence of avian flu. What we're seeing, where we're seeing it. Yeah, I think that's right, Patty, and that's the right way to start because. I can tell you, we're heading to Cape St. Mary's tomorrow, and what you can see at Cape St. Mary's now is the repercussions of what happened last year. So when you look at the stack right now at Cape St. Mary's, which usually is pure white with birds, um, there's lots of brown patches in it where there are open areas where there are no nesting birds. So those are birds that died in 2022. And, uh, and, and, and you know, these, these are gannets. They're the most highly affected bird that we know of in the world, uh, besides chickens, I guess, and domestic fowl. But um, so there's these huge gaps where these birds have died. And and uh, yeah, it's it, it, and it's ongoing. As a matter of fact, last week, uh, fisherman Patty Barry um, was fishing off Cape St. Mary's. Had six, reported six dead gannets on the water. So it looks like I mean it's clearly not gone away. We not certain impacts will be this year, but 
the repercussions from last year are pretty huge, yeah. Are we seeing the same type of bare patches where these birds would nest, uh, whether it be in Whitless Bay or Funk Island or Bakaloo or where have you? That's a great question, and I can't answer it. Um, the Canadian Wildlife Service will be flying over um, uh, Funk Island, probably Bakaloo as well, but they'll be flying over Funk, which is a big one, and that got blown out last year, just like Cape St. Mary's. And, and I think their flyovers in July um, – so they're likely to see some of this. This is the curious thing that happens, though, because because these gannets live for so long, they can live for 20 or 25 years. Um, it takes them, you know, maybe five years before they begin breeding. And before they begin breeding, they're not, they don't have that pure white plumage. They've got, you know, some feathering. And so what, and, and the trick is the younger birds come back later than the mature adults. And as they start coming back, uh, the expectation is that we might see younger birds filling um, some of those holes or, or, or mating with some of the survivors. And I've talked to um, Chris Mooney, um, who works at Cape St. Mary's, and he said he's already seen um, what look like some young birds, uh, you know, coming onto the stacked bird rock. Are there one species of seabird more prone to avian flu, whether it be, I think you said that was the case with northern gannets, but is it the same uh, level of risk for uh, kittiwakes or murs or turs or puffins or what have you? Yeah, they're, they're all vulnerable. Um, what, uh, and again, uh, dropping names here, I've worked with so many people, but Andrew Ling, uh at our university, he's in the biology department, and he, he studies viruses, and he said for all the birds that he studied, you know, MERS, puffins, whatever, uh, they find some resistance um, to, to the avian influenza, this H5N1, and they actually find some, you know, some antibodies that, you know, give a bit of resistance but the gannets are like have none you know so it's like it's like the gannets have never encountered this or anything like it and so when it when it finally gets to the gannets it's just it's just a huge impact so there is a difference and when we look across the north atlantic we've done it we we're working with people in europe where the, the gannets there have got uh, you know wiped out as well in many cases so um but yeah they're particularly vulnerable yeah where would you put avian flu in risk to seabirds on the hierarchy list whether compared to uh impact of fishing gear on seabirds or changing ocean temperature or seabird diet where does avian flu fa- fall well you know that yeah, that's such a tough question patty because um it, well, this is this is the thing every time i look at seabirds and, and try and think about that it's like they just get so and they seem resilient it, this is the amazing thing but they get so much thrown at them all of those things that you just mentioned and plastic and oil pollution uh, you know and hunting and etc cetera, etc cetera. it's it's hard to know so right now this has been a one-off with the avian you know this is you know, unprecedented it's a one-off and um, we don't know where it's going but I think you know, for one, I, I can't think of, you know, if you would ask what 
single mortality event that we have record of of killing gannets in particular and seabirds in general, I, I don't know anything greater than that, that because it has the scope of you know, for us, it's, it's most contained to the North Atlantic, but it's, you know, it's Iceland, Norway, um, Greenland, Europe, uh, you know, so us, Quebec. So it's it's huge. If, so for a one-time die-off, I don't know anything any bigger than this. And, and the question would be, even last year, Patty, the ocean temperature was hot, and we, when we studied, uh, well, I, I just tell you, I, I have a student working at Cape St. Mary's, Noah Kareen, and he, you know, he lives in Point Lance, so he lives right by there. He he recorded breeding success last summer, and it's the lowest we've had on record since the 1970s. You know, fewer than one out of five, you know, breeding pairs may get a chick to, to you know, to fledge and leave the colony. So every every way we look at it, and what I did want to was it was hot water last year, so, you know, ocean temperature warm, but it was actually hot. And Right when that water temperature started to kick in, um, that's when we really noticed lots of the gannets were missing. So it, we have this kind of idea that you put the extra stress on the birds from the water, it makes them hard to find food. They got the virus, and bang, it just puts them over the edge. So, and, uh, you know, it's huge mortality at that point. We've seen global reports on biodiversity, different species at risk and species being lost forever. So inside of this, and this might sound like a silly question, maybe it is, what's the real-life impact? Because the ecosystem yeah. balance is delicate no matter how you slice it. What's the real-life impact of the ecosystem if indeed this continues year over year? We see the die-off like we saw in 22. Yeah, so tough, Fatty. And, you know, those are the kind of questions, you know, it's not a question. Those are exactly the questions I think everybody who's studying um, these birds are asking, you know, and it, it does extend beyond birds for sure. But um, we just, we just, you know, we just don't know. And, 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 you know, it is kind of, you know, it's like with COVID. Where did that come from? Where's that going? Are we going to see it again? And now all of a sudden this pops up and there just seems to be so many of these things going on you know, in you know, in conjunction with climate change, uh, it's hard to know. And I, and again, I have to say, um, I, I, I don't by any means mean to, you know, write it off. But you know, it's you mentioned this, this, and we lose species like crazy. You know, of those survivors, there is an incredible resiliency. Uh, you know, of, of wild animals, of nature, and, and that is just so great to see. We see so much death. Um, it's just great to see the survivors, you know. Yeah, the Canadian Wildlife Service says, you know, a fully cooked bird, no risk. The risk is how you handle the bird. So they made recommendations yeah. about wearing gloves and don't touch your face right. and keep your pets away and all that kind of stuff. But we've seen the avian flu make it into a commercial operation, if I'm not mistaken, last year. What do you say to folks? Because the advent of homesteading and backyard farming and keeping some chickens and whatnot in your backyard or simply having a bird feeder, what do you say to individuals just with their backyard operations? whether they have ducks or chickens or bird feeders or whatever the case may be. 
Yeah, you know, I, I've got bird feeders. We just took them down. Um, so, and, you know, you can't, you can't assume anything. Um, but, you know, particularly ducks and, you know, chickens, those are the highly vulnerable uh, species, particularly because they can interact with gulls at Kitty Ritty, and those you really got to watch, because once, uh, you know, a bird like that, a domestic bird gets it, um, it just just goes wild, and there's been, you know, real concerns, uh, you know, on the chicken farms in Canada and, you know, everywhere around around the world, essentially. So, I mean, a super and and Pat, even when I say, um, you know, you know, well, we on the feeders in the summer anyway because of the parasites. So yeah, probably a good idea to get rid of those over the summer for sure. Yeah, I think I remember a story. Avian flu making it into a large-scale commercial chicken operation. They lost like two or three hundred thousand birds. Amazing stuff. Bill, appreciate your time as usual. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Stay in touch. Okay, yeah, thanks, Betty. Good to talk to you. My pleasure, Bill. All the best. Bye-bye. All the best. Take care. Yep. Bill Montevecchi, uh, seabird researcher, Memorial University professor. Julia Penny, she's the business manager of the East Coast Trail. She's got the patience to wait. Thankfully, we'll speak to Julia right after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Well, the East Coast Trail opened in 1994. It's 330. 36 kilometers incorporating some 25 linked wilderness paths and if I'm not mistaken International Trails Day is coming up early next month join us on line number two is the business manager of the East Coast Trail and that's Julia Penny Julia you're on the air yeah hey Patty thanks for having me happy to have you on the show so are all 336 kilometers of the trail open they are, yes. They're open year-round, and our crews are back on as of the beginning of May doing some upgrades, some enhancements. And you're totally right about International Trails Day. That's actually next Saturday, June 3rd. And we're celebrating it like we always do with our Trail Razor community hike. This year it's up in Pooch Cove, and we've got a day of fun hiking in the morning. We've got a bunch of musicians joining us afterwards, and we're going to have a really good time um, and fundraising for the East Coast Trail. You're always working on keeping the trail safe, but there's always going to be some rugged, natural portions of the trail that people might want to be aware of before they hit the trailways. What do you want people to know? Absolutely, yeah. So um, one of the things that we want people to to know is what hike they're going to be doing, and that's part of our initiative of our new Trailhead and Community Signage Project. Yesterday, we actually unveiled one of our brand-new signs up in Pooch Cove. Um, There have been eight new Trailhead signs installed already, and the rest will be up before the end of this year. And the signs add a lot more detail to the hiker. There's a map on there. There's your estimated hiking time, both in distance and minutes, um, plus, you know, some, some really important hiker safety information. So that's part of what we're trying to do. Plus, we actually, it's been a busy spring. We just launched a brand new website that um, improves the access to information about the trail, um, you know, what what difficulty rating the path that you're interested in hiking is, what you can expect to see along the way, um, and how to have, you know, the, just the best time that you can while you're out hiking. So the East Coast Trail at 336 kilometers, but of course, I think it navigates through 18 or 20 or 20-something communities. So there's going to have to be some mindset of the hikers to know that you are going to be interacting potentially with residents. What do you want the hikers to be aware of or the etiquette associated with being inside some of these communities? 
Yeah, exactly. So the trail starts at Topsail Beach and it goes all around up to Cape St. Francis all the way down to Capahaden. So there's tons of communities that you're walking through. Sometimes you're literally walking through somebody's backyard. And that's really part of the charm of the ECT. Um, you get to engage not only with the wilderness, with the trail, with the ocean, but also with the people. And that's really part of the vision and the story behind the ECT. But of course, with that, we want to make sure that hikers are being respectful of the people um, who live along the trail. Um, you know, taking all your garbage with you, always having your dogs on leashes, cleaning up after them, um, staying on the designated trail is a really big one, um, making sure that you're following the path. And like I mentioned with the new signs, those will help improve that. Um, also, our trail maps help to guide people. The, the trails are generally well marked, so it's not really an issue, but we encourage everybody to stay on the marked path and just be respectful of those folks who do live along the trail. And for those who maybe have taken on or small portions of the ECT it's also you might find out the hard way the difference between a loop and a linear with with the need to have a second car at the end to try to figure these things out break down the difference between the two because a lot of people may indeed be considering for the first time getting out on the ECT yeah absolutely and you know the beautiful part about the East Coast Trail is whether you've hiked you know Mount Everest or you've never hiked before there's a part of the East Coast Trail that's perfect for you Um, and the ECT is set up in what we call a through hiker format so it's all of the trails are linear so if we think about uh, Longshore Pass it starts at Topsail Beach and it ends in Portugal Cove there's not a loop so if you start at point A and you finish at point B you got to get back to your car somehow now um, I always tell hikers that even if you're hiking north First, turning around and hiking it back to your car south, you are experiencing a different view, a different look at the ocean, and you see different things. So it's not so bad having to do an out and back if you choose to do that. Uh, But some of the shorter trails, you know, you can do um, a five-kilometer trail. You can do that twice for a little bit of a longer hike. Of course, some of the longer ones, uh, you know, Spurwink on the southern shore, you might not want to do it there and back. You might want a shuttle or a friend with a second car. Um, But there are lots of options with customizing your hike and and enjoying every bit of it. People want to get in and out in a respectable time. You know, not every hiker is created equal, and you certainly want Mm -hmm. to beat the cover of darkness. Like, I might be able to do 5K at a certain pace. You could do it much quicker than me. So how do I set a realistic approach to the time it's going to take? Because you can tell me it's going to take an hour, but I may indeed be sluggish first time, overweight, or just want to take my time and soak in the beauty and the view. What do you, th- what do you want people to know about timelines? Yeah, definitely it's important to give yourself more time than you think that you may need. And the time estimates on our website are just that, they're estimates, right? So, you know, if you have a different hiking speed or, you know, if there's a pod of whales that you just don't want to leave that hiking spot because those whales are beautiful and put it on a show for you, um, you want to make sure that you cushion in extra time. And not only with the extra time, but you want to cushion extra water, extra snacks, make sure that you're prepared with your supplies so that you can stay and enjoy if you so want desire. Yeah, and protect your phone. You know, my phone battery thankfully lasts pretty good these days, but my phone that I just got rid of, the battery went in a heartbeat. So whether you turn it off or airplane mode or however you're going to conserve some battery power just in case. Before I let you go, Julia, how many of the 336 kilometers have you done? I think I've got about 40 left to do, maybe 35 or so, and I'm trying to get my sister out here this summer so that we can check them off here together. But, you know, every kilometer that I've done, um, trails that I've done several times, you know, never a bad time. Always just 
so much fun creating new memories. Um, so, you know, whether you've never been on the trail before or whether you're a veteran, um, you know, I'd encourage you all to, to use it. It's there. It's free. It's open. It's there to be used. Um, the trail does need work and love. So we have our trail raiser community hike on June 3rd to help some of those fundraising efforts. Um, we also have membership to the East Coast Trail. It's just $25 a year, but it does help the association out a lot. So I'd encourage everybody, you know, get out on the trail, visit our website, eastcoasttrail.com, check us out. And if you have any questions, we're always here to help. Uh, last one it just popped in my mind. There's a proposed pretty extensive, I think, much longer than the East Coast Trail being uh, t- talked about on the Great Northern Peninsula. Have they mm-hmm. approached your group for understanding how it works, what they need to be aware of? Because you've got the experience since 1994. What do you make of the proposal in the first place? And are you involved at all? I think it's a really cool opportunity. Um, Hiking is such an attraction to our province, and we're definitely supportive of hiking all around the province. There's been several new associations pop up over the over the province, which is so fun to see. Um, my understanding is it's really early stages for that trail, so we haven't been approached yet, but um, we're always encouraging that and happy to help how we can. Appreciate your time. Have a great summer. You too, thanks. Thanks, Julia. Bye-bye. Julia Penny is the business manager of the East Coast Trail. David was there to talk about Marine Atlantic. Hopefully we can get him back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. David, you're on the air. How are you doing today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not bad, not bad. I just had a little episode with the Marine Atlantic there back on the 16th of May. What happened? I, uh, I booked my uh, trip two months ago. So I booked it online, and I wanted a cabin, but there was none available. They said, okay. So I put myself on the waiting list, and I uh, got up to the ferry on the 16th of May. And so I said, well, I'll go down to the purser now and see where I am on the waiting list. And so, well, little backtrack here. When I pulled up to the Marine Atlantic in Port of Bass, there was only two lines of traffic, like two rows of cars and then a bunch of transport trucks. So it didn't look like it was very busy. So I thought, okay, I'll have no problem getting my room. So I get up to the purser and I ask him what number I am on the waiting list. And he said, oh, you're only number five. You should get a room like this, right? So he said, come back in an hour. I just got to do some paperwork here and get the truckers settled in. I said, okay. So I went, I said, well, I'll pay for a, uh, one of those reclining chairs while I'm waiting just in case I can't get a room. He said, okay. So I paid my $21.95, went over to the room and laid down for an hour. And uh, I said, well, an hour should be up. So I got up and went back to the purser's office and there was 15 people lined up against the wall. I said, oh, wow. There's a lot of people waiting on the waiting list. So uh, I asked the guy next to me, he said, are you on the waiting list? He said, yeah, kind of. So that's all right. I uh, sat there waiting and waiting. And next thing you know, I see a guy walk up to uh, the purser and uh, the purser said, oh, Bob, your room's ready. So Bob takes out his Visa card and uh, slips it into the machine there and pays whatever. So I talked to the guy next to me. I said, what's he doing? He said, uh, oh, he's paying for an upgrade. An upgrade? What do you mean? Oh, the truckers can pay for an upgrade and uh, get the room all to themselves. And I was blown away. Yeah. So I looked at the purser and I said, uh, are you serious? He said, oh, yeah, they can do that if they want. And I started swearing. Not, now, 
I didn't mean to swear. It's just I was getting irate because there's 15 truckers lined up here, 10 or 15, somewhere around there, right? And, you know, I don't think it's fair that they can upgrade to get the room to themselves. What is wrong with a trucker sleeping with another trucker? Well, that was a huge complaint that they were bringing forward during the pandemic is that they were forced to double bunk as opposed to what it was like in the first place or prior to. So I guess this was the reaction of Marine Atlantic to offer them this opportunity for a single bunk with an upgrade charge. I I suppose that's why it is the way it is now. But the truckers were calling us very frequently, talking about how frustrated they were with the inability to get their own bunk or berth. Well... You know what? I sympathize a little bit, but <laughs> I did. I was a trucker for a year, but my retina let go of my eyes, so I had to give up trucking. So when I was a trucker, I did bunk with another guy just to make it easier on everybody that was trying to get a bunk. Okay. So, and also, I spent 22 years in the military on tanks, so I shared a, a tent with four other guys. And if we weren't in a tent, we were in a what they call a modular tent. So you could share that with 12 or 30 or 40 other guys. So I, I don't sympathize with them that way. They could, you know, 22 years riding on the back of a tank or uh, sleeping in a tent with another three people. You kind of get used to it. I think they could have got used to somebody snoring or farting in their sleep. Yeah, look, I, I, not for me to say. They were the ones frustrated. I kind of got where they were coming from. But, I mean... We've all shared spaces with others, and I'll leave the truckers to describe it for themselves. So, obviously, you were in the Army then, David? Yes, yes. And how long ago since you've been active in the Armed Forces? Uh, 2002, I got out. 2002. Uh, Enjoy it, regret it, love it? Oh, I miss it every day. Do you? Every day, yep. Yep. But... uh, Pardon? No, I was going to say, not to pry too deep into your own private affairs, but, you know, we have a lot of conversation about the paper warfare, dealing with Veterans Canada, and some of the gaps in services. Do you have, do you have any interest in commenting on your interactions with Veterans Canada or whether or not you have? Sure. Uh Yeah, go ahead. Ask me a question. Now, we talk about benefits and some of the fees being charged and the time it takes to get access to a program, the amount of work you have to do on your end. Just describe your interactions and whether or not you've had problems similar to the ones I hear about. Yes, I have. Such as? Hard to talk. Hard to talk about. Well, I don't Uh, want want you to do anything you don't want to do. No, no, I, I think... I got a little bit of PSD, PTSD, and they sent me paperwork. Jeez, it must have been about 20 sheets of paperwork I had to fill out before I could get any help, and I didn't want to fill them out, so I just threw them away and coped with what I had. But, uh, no, uh, they've been quite well to me, actually, with the aspects of that. But, uh, yeah, just some stuff is... It's hard to get the, into to say, see a psychiatrist or whatever else they're called, a social service rep or whoever you want to talk to about your problems. It's hard to get into it. But uh, no, other than that, they've been quite helpful with, uh, you know, my standards of living, what I was used to in the military. They, they definitely helped me out that way. Well, I'm glad to hear that much. Uh, I appreciate the time, and hopefully I didn't uh, 
upset you or what have you with that type of question. I'm just always, con you know, always interested in real life experience as opposed to me reading a story about concerns yeah. surrounding veterans affairs. If I get it directly from a vet, that helps paint yeah. a picture or put a face to the pro uh, face to the policy. Yeah. Well, the the timeline is what kills you. You know, you you have a problem today and tomorrow it might go away. Uh, sometimes you got to wait three to six months before you can even go see somebody to, with your help. And I've lost a few people. Sorry. Through suicide, they couldn't get the help they want at the time. Oh, shit. Okay. And it should never be the way. We owe a debt no. of gratitude and service and support upon yes. leaving active duty. Yeah. Yes, I agree. David, I appreciate your time and the con the uh, issues surrounding Marine Atlantic and ability for one segment of society to upgrade. We'll follow up with uh, Daryl Mercer. He's the communications guy at Marine Atlantic. He's usually pretty good with his time. We'll see if he makes time yeah. for the show tomorrow. Yeah, I just wanted to... I did call Marine Atlantic the next day after I got off the boat and said, you know, this is ridiculous. Why should uh, 15 routes be allocated to truckers and they refuse to share a room? Mm -hmm. You know... There was only nine, I was on the Blue Petit. There was only 95 rooms available. And, you know, I don't know how many rooms were taken by crew and other things, but it, it's ridiculous that a trucker can't share a room with another guy. You know, we're all human, and Newfoundlanders are used to being together. You know, we, we camp together. We fish together. We hike together. You know, come on, guys. You know, share a room with another guy and make it, you know, I, I think people in the reclining 90, 80, 90 years old in those reclining chairs, I know they're not getting a good sleep. And then they got to get off the boat and drive to Ontario or wherever they're going. Yes, maybe they only go on the boat three or four times a year, but wouldn't it be nice to have a, a comfortable place to sleep at night? And uh, I didn't get nothing back from the first lady I talked to. She said, well, I'm only the receptionist. I'll take your complaint and I'll pass it off to somebody else. Two days later, finally, some lady by the name of April called me and, and said uh, the same thing we're talking about now, saying, you know, how would you like to share a room with somebody who's farting or, or talking in their sleep? And I said, I told her my situation, being in the military. I said, wouldn't bother me. But anyway, I said, I'd like that in writing. Why should they be allowed to upgrade? And she said, well, I can't give it to you in writing. I said, well, they shouldn't be allowed to do it. They, they should have to share a room with somebody else. Point and, taken. Uh, yes, but I never got nothing back from her, and I'm still waiting for something back from her. She said, well, i got to talk to my supervisors to see if, if there is something in writing. So I'm still waiting, if anybody's listening out there. <laughs> we'll try to get some information for you, and I appreciate your time this morning, David, and thank you for your service. You're welcome, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. That's good. Well, let's see if we can get Daryl Mercer for tomorrow from Marine Atlantic to talk about those types of issues and others surrounding Marine Atlantics and the plans for the... And they've got a new ferry on order, I believe, as well. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Sarah Strickland and David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.